Hello and welcome, budding enthusiasts. It's your boy, Heavy Days, coming at you from the Upside Down Library. And in this episode, we're doing a meet the sponsors. We work with some incredible sponsors who we're very proud to be affiliated with, and we want you guys to hear a little more about them. Seeds here now, James Bean, you've heard from him before and you'll hear again, but on this episode, we're going to hear a little bit from Matt from Premier Tech. Talk a little bit about ProMix Connect, your number one mycorrhizal product, as well as countless other products you're probably familiar with and might already use, such as their mediums. Likewise, we're going to hear from Kevin of Coped Biological Systems, an IPM expert in the field and a huge source of knowledge for any IPM questions. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. I had a lot of fun talking to everyone and I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. So up first, we have Matt of Premier Tech talking all things Promix Connect. We're going to jump straight into this one. Let's get into it. The thing which I find really interesting about Premier Tech and uh, Promix in general is that for years, the company has been really well known in the cannabis community for providing really high quality mediums and when i think pro mix i think a lot of the the media you guys produce most notably that for a long time came inoculated with mycorrhiza what was it that stimulated you guys to sort of start looking into mycorrhiza and wanting to pursue that pathway a little further well like you said we're really well known in the industry by the growing media you know uh, Promix HP uh, wasn't really developed for cannabis, but it, it ended up being like an amazing growing media to grow the plant. Uh, but we wanted to address the market more specifically. So we, we're looking at our technology, what is it's available, you know, uh, and looking at the plan and the growth cycle and everything, uh, how we can contribute, you know. Uh, and seeing all the product out there, we felt like we were able to bring a pro- high-end product on the market uh, that will help a grower grow great cannabis, you know. Yeah, really good answer. I'm. It sort of stimulates me to start thinking all about mycorrhiza myself. And maybe the best way to sort of discuss it is to start at the beginning, which is how do you guys grow mycorrhiza? Like, what what is the process behind doing that? Well, we have a uh, like a really unique proce- process at Premier. Uh, first, it's all done in house with our technologies, uh, but. In the mycorrhiza industry, there's basically two ways of producing uh, mycorrhizal fungi. There's the first one, I would say the most common and I would say the easiest in the market uh, is in vivo technique. So the mycorrhizal fungi is basically grown on a full plant uh, that is usually grown into an inert medium. It could be clay or sand, for example. Uh, and then you harvest all that inner medium, the root system of the plant and the fungi itself, and that's constitute the base of the mycorrhizal product. Uh, but there are certainly a couple of flaws with that technique. Uh, yes, it's the less expensive, but at the same time, it's, it's harder to ensure no presence of pathogen, control the, the type of genetics of mycorrhizae you end up with the product, uh, and it's harder to control also the concentration and the quality because you know, you're growing it out, out there on the full full plan. Um, at the beginning, like 30 years ago, that's how Prometic was doing it. Uh, but with a lot of years and research, we've developed uh, a technique which is uh, in vitro technique. 
is kind of grown on the artificial root system of a plant in kind of a mycorrhizal micro-reactor, if I can call it that way. Uh, honestly, I don't even know the process at all because it's a well-guarded secret in the industry. Uh, it, it requires special type of equipment. You know, it's done in the laboratory with aseptic condition, uh, with a special type of expertise. So yes, it's more expensive, uh, but you're able to produce massive amount of mycorrhizae, uh, enormous uh, concentration, uh, you know, and a, a very high quality product at the end. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. I think I had read a long time ago that um, some types of plants and root systems will produce mycorrhiza naturally, but, but it sort of like takes years. Does that sound correct? Uh, a, a plant in itself cannot, cannot grow mycorrhizae by its own. Uh, the way it can grow mycorrhizae is because I would have like a, a viable spores or, or mycorrhizal structure in the soil. And when the symbiosis happened with the root system, well, the mycorrhizal fungi are going to develop itself, you know, and at some point you can harvest the mycorrhizae on, directly on the root system of, of the plant. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I guess my follow-up question was I was always wondering, well, if you went somewhere that had like really old, established, mature growth, like say, like the redwood forests in Humboldt or like, you know, somewhere with really established growth, could you try to harvest mycorrhiza from that soil or not really? Yeah, definitely. Honestly, for example, Prometech didn't invent mycorrhizae or anything. Uh, mycorrhizae was found in the woods <laughs> by digging out some some roots. So when you have very old, uh, you know, uh, growth operation outdoor, uh, and you are, or even in the forest or stuff like that, you can definitely find mycorrhizae in the soil for sure. Okay, sure, but I mean, I guess obviously it's 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 pretty variable. In terms of the mycorrhiza product you guys create, I'm assuming that consistency is probably some like one of the benefits you can sort of bank on when buying a high quality mycorrhiza product like Promix Connect sort of thing. Yeah, definitely consistency is a big thing, uh, especially for a cannabis grower. You know, you're growing a high valuable plant, so you want to be able to have consistency in, in each of the batch of the mycorrhizae that you purchase. And we've just just talked about uh, about the method that we're using to produce that mycorrhizae. Uh, that ensure a very high quality product each and every time. Uh, but not only that, you know, we're, we test each and every batch uh, each time. And for Promix Connect, especially it's a very small batch. Uh, so we validate the number of viable spores for each batch, uh, the, the content of heavy metal as well, and also the presence of microbial, for example. So each uh, batch of product that you can buy out there is really, really uh, high quality. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, I was sort of wondering in terms of like the the viability of a mycorrhizal product is there such a thing as like a shelf life or it's sort of indefinitely stable uh there's definitely a shelf life because you know mycorrhizae uh, at the end of the day is a, a live microorganism you know so you have to keep it viable and alive uh in order to have the benefit uh, out of it uh we we have like a two years shelf life uh Assuming that it's keeping at the right temperature, you know, uh, indoor temperature is uh, not too hot, not too uh, too cold, you know. Uh, but yeah, uh, I would say we have a two years uh, shelf life. Yeah. Wow, that's really quite good. I mean, especially compared to some of the the other microbial products you get, sort of more bacterially based ones. That you know, the shelf life's quite limited comparatively. A question I was hoping you may be able to answer for me is: I had read in the past 
other mycorrhizal products, there can be quite a bit of variation in terms of what the spores are mixed with. Or I think I remember reading one time that mycorrhizal product I was using was it had like azomite with the spores or something or zeolite or something like that. And I guess I was wondering, is that common process and does that affect the quality of the product, the substrate it's sort of mixed or bound with? Uh if I understand the question correctly, you're talking about kind of the formulation of the product because the thing is like mycorrhizae, it's a, it's a fungi and you can put it in different type of carrier depending on how you want to bring the, the fungi to the plant. So it could be like in the case of Promix Connect, it's a wettable powder, uh, but you can, it could be granular form. Uh, zeolite is another example of carrier that can be used. And there's a lot of different type of carrier. Uh, it could be into, uh, into water, but it's a bit more complicated since you have to keep in low temperature to keep the viability. But, you know, you can formulate the product in different ways. And that's definitely something that Prometech has become expert at because uh, it's one thing to produce good mycorrhizae. Uh, but you have to keep it viable until the grower is actually using your product and formulation. So keeping the mycorrhizae alive on the car- carrier that you're choosing is a big part of it. Yeah, that that is definitely something I was hoping we could touch on a bit because something I had noticed and the reason why I stepped away from that mycorrhizal product I referenced in the past was, as you mentioned, you, you understood perfectly what I was trying to ask. So apologies for, for getting the word carrier and whatnot, but you were right. It was a granule sort of base mycorrhiza and I found it really hard to apply it to like the root ball when I was transplanting, for example, like it was, it would just fall off like little grains of rock sort of thing. Would you sort of guess that the way ProMix is made in the sense that it's that wettable powder and you can really get a nice coating on the root ball, for example, would you sort of guess that that's probably a better way of applying it than say the granules I gave up on in the past? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, in granular form, it can work as well. Uh, the key here in cannabis and mycorrhizae is to have proximity between the spores and the roots. You know, that's how the symbiosis is going uh, to happen. Uh, wh- and that's why we developed Promise Connect as a wettable powder. It's uh, like you just said, uh, you have the most proximity with the root, you're able to create a, like a coating. So like all the spores are really at the surface of the roots. So that's how you get, I would say the fastest uh, establishment. And uh, with that, you get the, the, the best benefits out of it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's good. So in the past, I had sometimes added mycorrhiza to just my water and then watered it in. Do you think that that's going to lead to sort of meaningful levels of the spores getting to the roots or you really sort of want to do what you mentioned and have it like proximally just really applied to the root itself if possible? Uh, I would say closest to the root is the best. Uh, you, you You could have an impact by mixing it with water, but clearly it's not efficient enough uh, for... You know, uh, first mycorrhizae isn't soluble, so you have to keep like agitation in your water in order for the mycorrhizae to stay uh, mixed into your water. So, so that's that's first. But even that, uh, the spore is gonna have to attach itself to the roots to have really an impact. But probably a lot of them are gonna be washed away when you're applying your water. You know, so yes, it could have an impact, but definitely not as much if you're applying it directly to your roots. Okay, sure. And is there anything people can do that you're aware of that would 
increase the ability for the the spore to successfully connect with the root like maybe like soil temperatures or like the degree of how wet the medium is at the time is there anything you're aware of that could help them get better benefit i would say uh, mostly two things uh the water not being too too hot or too cold you know tap water is just fine uh when mixing the powder for example uh and the second thing would be to maybe slow down on phosphorus for you know two weeks after application. Uh, and it's kind of renowned out there that phosphorus is not going to kill the fungi at all. It's just that if you have a lot, a big amount of phosphorus, uh, it's going to kind of inhibit uh, the establishment of that symbiosis, you know. Uh, so you want to give it a chance to those, uh, through those two first two weeks. Sure. I mean, this is just sort of a question that's come to mind, but if someone was to use mycorrhiza in a like a more of like a hydroponic setting where they're using salt-based nutrients and they're late in bloom and they're applying lots of phosphorus and potassium and stuff, I guess by virtue of what you just said, like you're probably not going to get that much effect out of applying mycorrhiza late in flower in that sort of situation or it's still beneficial, do you think? Well, the key anyway is not to apply the product late in flower, you know, to have the best benefit out of the mycorrhizae is to apply it as soon as possible. So the goal we recommend to apply, it, you know, uh, when your clone is rooted, that's when you, when you f- do your first transplant, that's when you want to apply it. Because, you know, uh, the establishment of the mycorrhizae and the symbiosis take, take some time. Uh, so the sooner you do the application, the better the benefits, you know, you're going to have at the end. Uh, so I don't see the point of doing it at the end, like late flower when you're going to harvest, you know, uh, a month from uh, from that point. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you touched on earlier how this is a, a high commodity crop. It's, it's a lot of value for people. And that's something I'm always trying to emphasize to people, especially when people talk about the economics of products and stuff. I'm I sort of frequently try to remind them that, you know, th- this is such a high value crop that sometimes paying for premium inputs, you're going to get a much better output. And I guess in the case of mycorrhiza, there's no discussion in the community about whether it works. Just empirically, you can see it works when you use it. It's just, it's so, so night and day difference. But I guess I'm sort of wondering, have you guys ever looked into or s- sort of tried to quantify at all the benefit of using mycorrhiza? Because I thought if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say it probably going to get twice as much growth or something like very dramatic increase. Have you guys ever looked into that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, one of our first single that we bring to the market is the return on investment, you know, uh, and the way we recommend to apply the product, you know, you, you're going to kind of put an investment between one or $3 a plant. It depends on how much powder or how you mix the product, you know, uh, but, you know, one or two, $3 a plant, it's, not much when, for example, let let's just say not not even a high uh, a high yield increase. Let's just say five percent. You know, five percent on a big plan it could end up to be twenty gram. You know, twenty gram at five ten dollar a gram, your return investment is pretty pretty easy. But not only that, uh, we've um, it was really really important for us to yes the yield. Uh, yes, yield is always important, but in cannabis quality is everything. Uh, craft cannabis, you know, I feel it's a really growing industry and, you know, you get top dollars for top flowers. And 
by bringing yes the yield but also the quality you know increased terpene increased cannabinoids you're able to produce consistently higher quality flowers and that you're able to get much more out of a crop even for example if you don't have any yield increase you're going to get better result as well yeah okay I mean, that opens the door to sort of discussing when might be the best time to use things in terms of getting the best return on investment. A lot of people use mycorrhiza as sort of a root-stimulating agent instead of your traditional cloning gels or powders, things like that. How would you use mycorrhiza? Would you say, for example, use it once when stimulating the roots and then again when transplanting? What? How would you tell, if your friend came up to you and said, when should I be using mycorrhiza? Give me the roadmap. Well, I would just tell you how I personally use it myself. Uh, you know, it, most of the grower out there anyway are now probably doing only one transplant. That's kind of the trend right now. Uh, and anyway, the most important uh, application is the first one. Um, and in my mind, the best one is when you have a rooted clone that is ready to be transplanted into a bigger pot because, you know, you have all those root exposed and you have to have the contact, like I said before, the roots and the spores in order to get the symbiosis going. So I would say that's really, really the key key moment to apply the product. Yeah, okay, great. And I mean, this one is kind of a hard one to answer and that's why I'm asking you because I wasn't able to find an answer. But I've always been curious as to how mycorrhiza facilitated that root stimulating process because it's very clear based on people's evidence of just trialing it themselves that mycorrhiza is a reasonably, uh, is a pretty down good effective rooting agent. But I could never really like figure out like what was, how was it mediating this process? Do you have any idea about that? Or is that just something we probably need to research a bit more to figure out? Well, mycorrhizal fungi basically need the plant to live, that's how it works, you know, uh, by uh, having that symbiosis going with the root system of a plant, uh, that's how the mycorrhizal fungi is able to thrive and develop itself, you know, create the IFI network that bring the benefit, the renowned benefit of the mycorrhizae, which is picking up water, picking up nutrients, you know, uh, and in return, it's gonna help the plant to thrive because if the plant thrive, the fungi is gonna thrive as well. So if you have more water, more nutrient, uh, you're gonna be able to develop bigger root, uh, a bigger structure, bigger flower, you know, and higher quality. It's all linked together. So if if the fungi is doing well, well, the plant is going to do well as, as well. So, Okay, yeah, that's that's a really sort of nice explanation. Like, so you're sort of thinking that maybe there's like a, a chemotaxic sort of process where the fungi are stimulating the roots to ensure their own survival sort of thing. Well, there's... A, a whole process behind of it, you know, I can go deep into each and every step, uh, you know, the, the spores when you get into contact with the roots, like physically, uh, is going to detect where the roots is in the soil and it's going to germ germinate towards it. And at some point, it's going to have a contact between the IFE and the roots, uh, the root uh, in itself, and it's going to penetrate the root cells and create structure inside the roots of the plant. And when those structures like arboriscal and visical are created inside the root, and they are able to exchange energy. And that's how the IFE network then is going to be created. And, you know, that relationship, yes, going to bring more water and more nutrient, but, you know, you're impacting also the immune system of a plant. You're basically stimulating the immune system of the plant. So that's kind of also where uh, the enhance of quality cannabinoids and terpenes compounds like that came from. 
Yeah, wow, okay. That's that's really good information to know. So with that in mind, how there's more sort of nutrient availability with the presence of mycorrhiza, would you sort of try to angle that effect as you could get away with using less nutrients because it's more available to the plant? Or would you sort of try to pile up on it and be like, well, let's actually add more nutrients and try to facilitate even greater uptake? (laughs) Often I try to stay away from that topic because, you know, uh, cannabis gore are really like personal in terms of using nutrients, you know. Uh, But for sure you can uh, slow down on nutrients because you're going to pick up more. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can keep the same schedule and you're going to achieve better results as well because it's, it's going to maybe help you achieve better, like become like become more nutrient, like I said, but also like avoid salt buildup and stuff like that because you're having that much nutrient present into the soil, you know? Sure. So, I mean, the majority of our listeners, as far as I'm aware, are soil-based growers, but, you know, we like to show some love to our soilless growers from time to time. Um, so I guess my question is, as far as you're aware, does mycorrhizal work equally as effective in sort of both styles of growing? Yeah, you know, um, our mycorrhizae promix kind of, yeah, of course it's promix, it's, it's, it's work well with our growing media, but it's compatible with other type of, of media, you know. Uh, as long as you have a physical support for the roots and the fungi, it is going to work. Uh, you know, rock wall, cocoa, it's just fine. Directly into soil as well, of course. Uh, the only issue that I would say is pure hydroponic and to be more precise, aeroponic, because you don't have a physical support to develop the root and the fungi. So I'm not sure how, how it would work. But in most cases, mycorrhizae is compatible with kind of every style of growing. Fantastic. And from what I had read, it sort of was saying that ectomycorrhiza didn't really provide any benefit to cannabis. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, uh, no effect at all because it's kind of just a filler because at the end of the day, uh, the mycorrhizal fungi is not going to be able to connect with the root system because it's just not compatible. So it won't have any effect at all. Sure. And I mean, in the past, I'd seen mycorrhizal products which had sort of boasted being a blend of, you know, 6, 12 different mycorrhizal strains, things like that. What's your thoughts on that? Does it provide diversity or is it filler? Uh, you know, that's something that is really popular in the market. The, the most, the better. Uh, but unfortunately for mycorrhizae, it's not the case. You know, uh, we've did a lot of research at finding the best strain of uh, the of the best you know genetic of mycorrhizae out there, which is Glomus and Triradices in the Promix Connect. You know, by putting any other uh, mycorrhizae in there, you're just introducing competition with the mycorrhizae, which doesn't help the strain to, to thrive. You know, uh, and to put other mycorrhizae in there, you have to dilute the amount of mycorrhizae that you put in of your best strain. So you know, it's just count you know it doesn't work that way yeah brilliant i'm glad to hear that from you because that had been my suspicion for a while i think yeah i had read that yeah the glomerular um subspecies was the sort of doing the bulk of the work so that's when i started to wonder you know are the the rest just sort of filler so i mean do you suspect that going forward in maybe say more the long term you'll see companies all switch to just sort of providing the one strain that's doing the bulk of the work, or do you think there's still just always going to be a bit of marketing at play? Uh, There's definitely always going to be some marketing, but we have to keep in mind that some people are just aren't able to produce a 
perfectly pure product. You know, like I've talked earlier, when you're using like uh, in vivo technique of growing directly on the plant, it's hard to keep control of what is actually growing on the root system of the plant. So you have probably multiple species of mycorrhizae in there. So I, I feel like there's always going to be some product like that out there. And people that are actually able to produce high uh, concentration of a specific species, specific species going to go uh, that route uh, eventually. So with that in mind, are you aware of any other microbes which may sort of synergize well or just work well in conjunction with mycorrhiza that you're personally fond of? Yeah, uh, Honestly, most bacteria work really, really well with mycorrhizae. That's why, for example, our Promix Plus line, there's mycorrhizae and uh, a bacillus inside our growing media because they work really, really well together. And for example, if you're already using a standalone product based, which is some bacteria, it's going to help definitely because uh, bacteria work well uh, when you have organic surface available because they grow on the root, you know. Uh, and if you have the IFI network that is well developed, well, it's more surface for your bacteria to grow. So there's definitely a good synergy with uh, most uh, bacteria and uh, mycorrhizae. Yeah, okay, good to hear. And I mean, a bit earlier you mentioned how mycorrhiza sort of directly can affect the plant's immune system through the way it connects with the roots. Something I always try to talk to people or listeners is about how when you affect the plant's immune system beneficially you're essentially just increasing its ability to fight off pests to fight off pathogens things like that would you say that essentially mycorrhiza is doing that as well yeah definitely uh, you know it's a big resistant to stress uh, you know if you're using mycorrhizae outdoor uh, the death rate of your crop is going to be way lower than without it because you know it's a, have a, a bigger resistance to stress and you just you just said it uh, if you're able to defend yourself against pests and stuff like that uh, well that translates into higher terpenes higher cannabinoids because you know those compound in cannabis wasn't meant for <laughs> for human to get high uh, it's a it's a defense mechanism from the plant so if you're able to defend yourself uh, more easily you know produce more terpene and more cannabinoids you know yeah i uh, i wholeheartedly agree and i love i love that you bring that up you know like as um as much as we like to think we're masters of the universe, this uh, this plant that's near and dear to our heart is essentially just trying to fight off some bugs at its core. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's good. I don't know who told me that, but uh, basically c- cannabis is a f- sexually frustrated plant. It's just trying <laughs> to reproduce itself and we're not letting it, it like reproduce itself. We don't want to have any seeds. So she's just keeping on putting flowers and hoping that some pollen is going to come his way. <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, something I've done in the past and I'm happy to throw myself under the bus here a little bit with this is I sort of just wanted to experiment a bit and make some weird and wonderful microbial mixtures. So I'd sort of just mix a few different microbial powders together and then make a little slurry and apply it to the roots and just sort of see how it goes. Have you heard anything about that working good, working bad? Is there any mixtures you might recommend avoiding? Like, I guess maybe one I was thinking about initially was, do you want to avoid mixing different fungal spores together or not a real problem with that? What's your take? 
like I said before, I, I don't really consider myself to be like a guru per se. So I don't have a lot of knowledge on that subject. But, you know, uh, I know growers that are using, uh, you know, live bed uh, to grow cannabis, you know, mixing a lot of different, uh, different uh, compost, uh, different type of microorganism, you know, creating like an alive soil. And I definitely see people having a lot of success with that. Uh, but if you're asking my personal opinion, I, I just I just find that it's maybe a bit more trouble because you're having the locks that you, you provide. You have a, like a, an external uh, containers, you know, so you are able to control what you're providing to your plant. So why putting like so much into it and not able to manage like specifically when you, you, you want to create, you know? OK, sure. And another one I'd sort of always wondered about, which I think you might be able to answer for me is. Sometimes when I'd seen people making compost, like mixing a bunch of amendments like, you know, maybe alfalfa and kelp and a big pile and then cooking it up before they eventually grow with it, I'd seen them adding mycorrhizae at that step and just when they mix their compost pile and then let it sit for a while. And I thought, do the spores just sit there stagnant waiting or what What do you think happens there? Uh you know, we haven't made any study on that. I don't think so. But uh, personally, I think that maybe there could be some effect at some point because maybe some of the spores are going to stay dormant into the compost. But at the same time, there's so much heat into it. Probably most of it's going to die. Uh, but depending on how you proceed, maybe some of the, the mycorrhizae is going to stay alive. And at some point, if you're having, there's proximity with a root that is growing into the compost or the mix that you created, there's going to be some effect at some point. Yeah, I guess that's what I sort of figured that like you're sort of trying to prime the medium to be ready for the roots. But yeah, I guess that that hot composting process might might take its toll on some of the spores. Okay, well, I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, another thing I'd sort of wondered in a similar fashion was when people were brewing teas or making nutrients for their plants and they might, you know, bubble it with an air stone for a few days before they use it. And they were throwing mycorrhiza powder into that mixture and letting it bubble for a few days. Do you have any thoughts on that side of process? Uh, like I, I said earlier, it's, it's kind of uh, tricky to put mycorrhizae sometime into water because uh, water makes like chemical compound more available for the mycorrhizae. So sometime, you know, how mycorrhizae preserve is that the spores are dormant, you know, uh, and when you put it in contact with water, they can they can come across some chemicals that gonna you know trigger them to to uh, to germinate, and when they germinate at some point they're not gonna have any energy left to create that symbiosis. So like uh, putting it into water, it's kind of a risky move right from the get go, uh, but like you just mentioned, there's so much technique out there that definitely start at some point some kind of effect. Uh, but definitely not as much as the classic way that we recommend, like directly on the root system, you know? Okay. I think I had read somewhere in the past that um, mycorrhiza can die after as little as, say, 24 hours after being put into water if it doesn't attach to a root. Does that sound like there's any truth in that, or maybe it's not quite correct? Well, the... First thing, there's a lot of mycorrhizae product uh, water-based on the market. And if you see a mycorrhizae product that is water-based and that is on a shelf and not like a lower, like say, let's say four degrees temp temperature, that 
is basically it won't work. Uh, you know, in water form, it's way, like I said earlier, harder to keep the viable spores dormant. Uh, so if they get activated, they, like I said, they're eventually gonna die because they won't be able to connect with any type of roots. So it's a bit more tricky when having a, a formulation, a water-based formulation. Yeah, okay, sure. And I guess it probably just varies from brand to brand as to how long the spores would be viable in that situation. Yeah, definitely. And it's also depend on the application, you know. Uh, if you're having a powder form that you're mixing with water right away and you're applying directly on the roots, you won't have time to die, you know, because you're using the product right away. I'm more, more talking into like a shelf life uh, situation. Okay, yeah, no, that, that makes sense for sure. So a lot of the people listening to the show utilize a style of growing called no-till where the idea is, you're trying not to disturb the soil as much as possible and just sort of taking out the stump of the old root, putting a new one in. Does that sort of environment lead to any benefits with the mycorrhiza? Because the soil's sort of there long term or because the roots are in this cycle of like being healthy and then dying off and then new roots, is it sort of like you're just starting fresh in a sense each time? Uh if I'm understanding correctly, you meaning you like reusing the same soil to yeah. grow cannabis, right? Okay, okay. Uh, well, if you're using mycorrhizae already and you're keeping the roots in there, uh, there's still going to be some mycorrhizae and spore left because, you know, when mycorrhizae grow on roots, it creates spores, a vesicle and stuff that is able to reconnect eventually with an alive root system. Uh, but at the same time, uh, reusing your soil is a, always a tricky business because, you know, for example, you're purchasing ProMix for the porosity, you know, the structure of the soil that is provided uh, and, uh, you know, the stability of the pH and stuff like that. But that's something that over time you're you're going to lose because there's compaction, you know, the fiber of the peat's going to get degraded. Uh, all of those stuff that's going to come into play as well. Okay, sure, yeah. So I guess it sort of would be a bit of a challenging undertaking for someone to try to like reuse the same pot just again and again and again just to try to like get their own mycorrhiza, right? Yes and no. Like I mean, I, I, I may be more talking into like a commercial business type of thing, but if you're like trying some stuff at home, like craft cannabis and trying new things, there's, you know, you can try whatever you want and see see, see how it goes. Uh, I I seen people doing so much different thing and having, having success you know it's not because personally me i'm not doing it that is not good but uh, I, I i see it may be difficult to do it like in a commercial scales but you know if you're growing for fun at home definitely uh, you, you can try it something i had always wondered was you often hear about foods for microbes be it bacterial or fungal is there any food you can give to help make your mycorrhiza more happy so to speak not really, I would say, because, you know, uh, bacillus and bacteria are able to re like get their food or their nutrients in the soil, you know. So that would be for for bacteria, like, yeah, could you can apply some stuff that will help their development. But, you know, to develop itself, mycorrhizae just need the plant. That's they they get their nutrient, their energy from the plant. So even if you are adding any type of you know sugar or stuff into your your grow media, uh, if it benefit the mycorrhizae, it's because it's gonna benefit the plant and not directly the mycorrhizae. Yeah. Okay. That I mean that's sort of in line with the principle organic growers use anyway, feeding the soil, not the plant. So I guess it's the same with the mycorrhizae. 
Yeah, exactly. As far as you're aware, are there any factors which can improve the efficiency of the mycorrhiza once it's been applied to the plant? Uh, well, we, we touched point on that earlier, but I definitely like the, f- uh, the amount of phosphorus that you're applying right after it. Uh, I would say like to low down uh, below 20 ppm would be like a recommendation to ensure that the symbiosis get going uh, more easily and faster. Yeah, okay, sure. I guess I'm sort of thinking like, do mycorrhiza favor any particular medium composition over others or it's all pretty much effective of similar proportion no matter what medium you're in? Uh, to be low, totally honest with you, I, I feel like it's going to work well in any type of environment uh, because, you know, mycorrhizae is also renowned to help the structure of the soil. It's such a small structure that pretty much any type of soil that it's in is going to thrive and develop itself really easily. You know, compaction is not really an obstacle for mycorrhizae. So I would say it's going to thrive in pretty much all, all those environments. Okay, sure. I've been doing a lot of reading about the Promix Connect product and I guess I'm sort of wondering, are there any specifics about it or the production methods which you feel help set it apart from others? Well, uh, we've talked earlier about uh, the Premier Tech, you know, using a in a in vitro technique, which is a big part of our success. You know, we're in house producing our mycorrhizae, having full control of all the process from A to Z. You know. Uh, a lot of brands out there are co-packing that are actually purchasing mycorrhizae and just putting it in a bag. So, of course, you don't have the same control as we have. Uh, you know, we've been uh, doing that for so long now that we're really expert into not only producing mycorrhizae, but formulating mycorrhizae. And not only that, but Promise Connect has been developed exclusively with cannabis in mind. Uh, and, you know... Um, when you deal with uh, microbes and alive microorganisms, the first thing is it needs to be viable. They need to be alive. And that's something that we guarantee. We have 6,000 viable spores inside our product. So there's nothing nothing dead, dead in there. So you know what you're paying for. And after that, we guarantee the concentration. 6,000 viable spores is by far the most concentrated product out there. There's not even someone that is coming close so having a higher concentration you know you you have a better chance to get the symbiosis established quickly so better benefit at the end as well and the last thing uh, we've developed it as a weighted ball powder because cannabis is such a short crop you know uh, you want the symbiosis to get going fast so you have a concentrated product that it's uh, alive and close to the root system as a weighted ball powder yeah, okay. I think in the past I had read some sort of different units used. In, I think it might have been like BTU or something like that and they're talking in the billions or the thousands. Are there different sort of units used to sort of measure the activity of the product or it's all standardized in like the spore count? Uh, I would like it to be standardized, but it's, it really isn't. Uh, most mycorrhizae products out there are listed as Propagol. Uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Propagose is a real term, you know, uh, but prop- propagose stands for any part of the fungi that may connect with the root system eventually. But at the same time, that could be an eye feed, it could be a root fragment with some vesicle, you know, it could be an unviable spores. And all of that is counted into the concentration of the product. But at the end of the day, none of those structures are going to have an impact on, on the plant. 
only viable spores are able to efficiently colonize the roots. So that's why we don't even count those. Uh, in Promix Connect, it's strictly 6,000 viable spores. Uh, and you can often see product out there, let's say, for example, 500 propagules per gram. But at the end of the day, you end up having like 50, 10 viable spores in, inside per gram. So, you know, uh, we would like to get more education out there about mycorrhizae, you know, viable spores versus propagules, because definitely it, it make a big difference between two products. Yeah, I guess if someone had used mycorrhizae in the past and they hadn't felt like they got particularly good benefit from it, maybe they just need to try again with something with a bit more guaranteed activity in the box, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of product out there. I don't want to do any name drop or, or, or anything, but, you know, uh, the viability of the, the product is just isn't there. Each and every year, Prometech, we test every product on the market. And, you know, uh, the viability of the product is just everywhere, all over the place. It's, it's, it's really rare that a product uh, came up with the same claim as, uh, as it says on the packaging. Uh, so I would definitely say to try, you know, a product that guaranteed the viability uh, uh, of their spores. Yeah, okay. Good stuff, good stuff. So, I mean, I guess I'm wondering if you were trying to sort of describe to someone mycorrhiza who, you know, not so familiar with the ins and outs of it and they're just sort of looking for the major points, how would you describe the major benefits of using it? You know, it, it, it's all linked together, of course, because, you know, you having you pick up nutrients and more water more easily. But all the benefits, we're basically putting them in four categories. Uh, it would it would be like LTR and enhanced root system first, uh, you know, because having that IFI network helping the root system, you're able to have like a bigger root mass, you know, a bigger, uh, nicest establishment of your root system. Uh, and then you go at faster growth and yet you know, it make only sense since you have picked up nutrient and water uh, e easier, you're going to be able to put more mass uh, quickly. And that's it's kind of a big deal because being able to put more mass quickly, you're able sometimes to shove a couple of days of veg, which in a commercial standpoint is a really, really useful, useful thing. Um, after that, I would say it of course, the increased crop yield, you're able to have a bigger structure, uh, big, most more energy available, you're able to produce, you know, a bigger flower uh, at the end. Um, and the last thing, and in, in my mind, the most important is is higher quality. Consistently, we've tested higher terpenes content and, and, um, and cannabinoids. Yeah, some really strong selling points there, though. I think uh, a lot of people who listen to this show are probably already quite avid fans of mycorrhiza so it's now just time to get onto the promix train and see what benefits it has in store something i was wondering given you guys are now doing the promix connect is what is the the future of premier tech Do, are there any sort of fields you guys are thinking about expanding into or is there a, a, a further step with the mycorrhizal products you want to go in where do you see yourself where do you see the company going in the future well, you know, I would like to elaborate on that, but of course I cannot, you know, tell too much about it. But, I, you know, Prometech has always been a company about innovation and research. So I can definitely tell you that we're always working on something. And I can tell you that we're specifically working on something on cannabis. We have a lot of technologies available that uh, eventually we'll be able to maybe bring to the market. So we're definitely working on some stuff. 
uh, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, to bring them to the market as soon as possible, you know. Exciting. We'll have to keep our eyes open for that one. I mean, probably not going to be too hard for people, but where can people find Promix Connect if they're looking to give it a try? Uh, I can probably provide you with uh, with the link. We have a landing page about the Connect. Uh, it, it listed all the hydro store that is available. Uh, and we're also online uh, with uh, Indoor Growing Canada, which is available all across Canada as well. And it probably in the U.S. in the next couple of, couple of weeks. So, yeah, pretty much available all across uh, North America. Ah, fantastic. And, I mean, long-term... Do you expect that people will probably be able to find it in you know their sort of local grow store, or their best bet is just to go online, get it shipped directly to them? Uh, it depends on your habits. We're definitely not taking the hydro store out. Uh, we're we want to cater the hydro store space because we st- we still believe that it's a, it's a strong space to be in. Uh, but of course, with everything that happened in the last uh, the last year, um, you know, e-commerce has come uh, a long way. So. You know, we're going to try to be available on that space as well. Sure. And I mean, for the people who like to go to the face-to-face events when they resume back up, do you guys have stalls there? Can people come and ask you questions, things like that? Uh, you know, we're going to start to get more and more out there. Uh, you know, uh, the, the world is kind of starting it again. So we're at a lot of uh, shows throughout the years. We're going to, you know, be, be out there interacting with people. So... Yes, uh, I cannot, in the top of my head, tell top of my head, tell you all the shows that we're gonna be in, but def- definitely we're gonna be out there. <laughs> yeah, now that's good to hear. Hopefully, people can catch you at some of the shows. And one of the final questions I have for you is: some of our listeners operate bigger size facilities and sort of, you know, have those more serious operations. Do you guys provide different sizing? Are there sort of bigger bundles available to people if they're looking to get like, you know, a sort of substantially bigger size? Uh, The biggest size that we have available is 2.5 kilogram, uh, which three, around 700 plant, uh, depending on how you use it. Uh, So that's that's our biggest packaging. Uh, But of course, um, it's easier to go into like a bigger, uh, bigger format for like, let's say a big 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 customer so uh, we're open to maybe having having something bigger eventually so sort of in line with that topic we were talking about earlier where you know some products advertise in different units and they're different sizes and different prices and it it can become quite complex quite quickly do you feel that there's an easy way to sort of judge what is bringing value in terms of a mycorrhizal product uh yeah of course that you know there's a lot of product out there so it's come confusing like very quickly but uh, the thing that you need to look at basically is the number of valuable spores uh, you know because a lot of people out there are shopping a price for a a weight but at the end of the day you're not paying for a carrier Uh, you don't want to pay for clay you're paying for mycorrhizae Uh, and what brings value to the mycorrhizae is the number of valuable spores so yes some product like Promix Connect we know it we're a high-end product of course but at 6,000 viable spores, when you take it into account, we're kind of the most affordable mycorrhizae product out there based on the concentration. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think that's just about everything I had to ask you, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Were there any comments, shout outs, anything you wanted to say? Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get more and more involved with the community on uh, our Instagram. So 
come and interact with us on Promix Cannabis and also myself on Promix Matt. Uh, you know, uh, you, you are welcome to hit me on my DMs anytime. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Amazing, you know, and thank you so much to both yourself and everyone at Promix who's on board with helping support the show. You know, we, we really appreciate you guys being able to help us make the shows happen. And it was fantastic to have you on and get a rundown about all the ins and outs of Promix Connect. Well, I had a blast on your, on your show and thank you for having me. Uh, maybe I'm going to come back at some point. What do you think, guys? Some awesome mycorrhizal knowledge there from Matt at Premier Tech. Thanks so much again, Matt. Up next, we're going to hear from Kevin Cullum of Coppet Biological Systems. Very grateful to have him on the show. Let's jump straight into it, gang. Alrighty, so a huge shout out and welcome to one of the IPM specialists from Coppet Biological Systems. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to join me today and to talk all things IPM. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Not a problem at all. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So to start out, I was hoping you might be able to give me a little bit of background on yourself and how you ended up coming to work with Coppet. Um, I've always actually kind of grown. I grew up in the greenhouse industry, like in the commercial. I originally was from the commercial ornamental industry i worked for since i was like 15 and that's all i ever did is what i went to school for and then i used to be a grower at a big commercial greenhouse and then i moved into some other aspects of it and then i ended up at copert about 15 years ago and they were kind of always around in the industry they you know back in the day they weren't quite as prevalent because biocontrols weren't as uh, commonly used but uh yeah when it started to take off and it was always something that interests me so i switched over to uh, to working here Wow, that's a that's a cool little story. I mean, it must have been an interesting journey to sort of transition from, you know, like a non-cannabis related horticultural field to sort of being more in the in the active scene of the the cannabis related field. Have you enjoyed that so far? Yeah, like just to be clear, I kind of grew up around both things. I was always kind of involved in the cannabis industry at the same time. Um, back in the, I was kind of involved in the early days in the medical scene in, in uh, Canada. And I used to work, I actually used to be the cultivation writer for uh, Cannabis Culture Magazine. Back, this is back in like the 90s. And then I've kind of had an equal uh, footing both in the commercial greenhouse part and the, and the cannabis um, part as well. Yeah, awesome. Okay, yeah. So quite a, quite a um, depth of experience you've already got under your belt. So one of the things I wanted to sort of start out chatting with or the place I wanted to start our discussion was sort of the utility and the benefits of predator mites. It's been something which, for example, in Australia has only recently sort of come to light, whereas I'm sure in places like Canada and America where the technology has been established there a bit longer, probably more aware of it and whatnot. But I guess something I'd love to talk about starting out is how would you describe predator mites and what would be sort of a, a sales pitch for someone who's a bit on the fence and not quite sure how to use them or what they're used for? Yeah, I think the first thing is that I think maybe what people don't realize is how long they've actually been used for. So um, they, they, everyone, a lot of the people in the cannabis industry, they kind of seem to think that it's like this new thing when cannabis started, but it's really been going on like since the 80s, at least in uh, commercial uh, 
vegetables. It wasn't in ornamentals uh, up until somewhat more recent, but um, it was always just not in organic vegetables. This isn't like conventional vegetables. It's always been a standard. Um, and in the last, like I said, I've been here 15 years and probably most of the time I've been here, it was also uh, ornamentals that became a standard. Um, so cannabis is kind of the last thing. So it's a very well-proven strategy. Um, and most of the, most of our customers, like I said, a lot of people think that biocontrols is something that it's like a cosmetic type of thing or makes you feel good that you're doing it. But most of our customers are actually like conventional ag that they're not organic or anything. They just use it because it's actually a really good cost-effective solution, but they use it in combination with, you know, pesticides or, or other, other strategies. That's a, a really brilliant point. The utility of predators across multiple different systems. I guess a lot of people who follow the organic principles of growing are generally sort of interested in this sort of holistic style of management and whatnot. How best should people apply predator mites? I've always sort of advocated to people that, you know, if you imagine you're a city and your city's under attack, you kind of want to have the army already there ready to go to help defend you rather than having to muster it up once you're under attack and, you know, everything's on fire and it's a bit of an issue. Do you agree with that? Do you think people should sort of prophylactically be using predator mites to help uh, mitigate any potential issues or do you more advocate to use them when required? Uh, Definitely proactively, but you can also use them like curatively. So I'd say the real answer is it's a combination. You want to have them in the crop but you usually uh, need to kind of switch gears into different predator mites when you get a situation. So for instance, like kind of a standard in cannabis is um, what you t- generally people are picking kind of a generalist predator is kind of like their base. So that would be typically Swirsky or Cucumaris. And that's a predator mite that it's a generalist where it can eat a lot of different stuff, um, but it's primarily focused, like its preference is thrips, which is generally on cannabis, kind of the main um, pest. Um, so you're kind of working from that and then you stack other stuff on top if you have the issue. So sorry, they would, Swirsky or Cucumaris would kind of be the base. And then if you're in a garden that, you know, consistently has like spider mite problems that you're expecting, then we would put in uh, SpyCal, which is the tree name, but it's Californicus. And that's kind of for spider mites at like a preventative level. But then for instance, if you get spider mites kind of raging a little bit, you need to move over to um, Spidex, which is Persimilis. So they've all got kind of their own little niche. So a lot of it's about starting off preventatively and stacking them uh, accordingly. Yeah, that's a that's a great point you make there. And it sort of segues into the next question I had for you, which was that if you look on the website, there's really nice information about the different predators, what they can be used to combat, a whole bunch of interesting and wonderful extra bits of information. And something I noticed, which you sort of just touched on, is that there can be a bit of overlap. You know, you read different predators and maybe a commonality between a few different ones you read about is that they're all good for aphids, for example. So my question would be, how would you go about selecting the product to use if you're seeing a few of them that all are covering aphids, for example? Are you safe with any of them? Is there a way in which you might figure out one maybe out edges the others a little better for your situation? How would you go about choosing that? So when you get into aphids in particular, that's probably 
for sure the most tricky one when it comes to anything, especially cannabis, because that's one that they're the controls are very like the predators are very specific to the type of aphids. So the absolute first thing you need to do is actually ID what type of aphid you're dealing with most of the time. And I'll tell you, there's a couple of caveats. It's a, it's a big box, the aphid control thing. So if you're using parasitoids, which is kind of our, usually our standard approach on most crops. So a parasitoid um, is like a wasp, not like a wasp that stings you, but it's a parasitic wasp, like kind of maybe as big as a mosquito or something. And what it does is it's really good at searching the crops. It'll fly the crop and it's smelling out aphids. And when it finds an aphid, it lays its egg in the aphid and makes what's called a mummy. Um, so, and then instead of the aphid, so the aphid slowly dies, the parasite takes over and at the end, the par another parasite hatches out of the aphid. So that's usually our standard because it's a really nice thing to keep going in your crop because you only just, it just you know, for every one aphid, it, you know, for one biocontrol you put out there, I'm just making up the number. I don't know how many it is, but let's say it's 40 aphids that it parasitizes. So for every one aphid you put in, you're actually getting 40 back, you know, the first two weeks later, and then all of those go and lay eggs themselves. So it, it really builds an army in the crop. So for that, those parasitoids are very um, specific. So for instance, if you're dealing with like cannabis aphid, um, the one, uh, there's kind of three main parasitoids and we found one of them works um, a lot better on cannabis aphid. One is called the Aphipar-M, which is the Phidias matricaria. Irvi works as well, fairly well. And then um, Colmani doesn't work. Colmani is another parasitic wasp, doesn't work hardly at all. Um, so you really have to be very specific because if you go at it with the wrong parasitoid, it'll literally do nothing. So we kind of go at it from a couple of approaches. So that's the parasitic wasp is kind of the more traditional approach. And then you've got like a completely different approach, which would be more like a predator bug. So that's what, when people think about ladybugs, that's what a ladybug is. It's like actually eating the, the aphid. Um, we don't use ladybugs too much, but we use a lot of lace wings in cannabis. Um, so the, you know, the advantage on cannabis, I guess, in some situations is that the lace wings are eating a, a, they're really indiscriminately. So you don't have to ID the aphid anymore. It's just going to eat whatever it sees. And it also doesn't leave aphids in the crop, which sometimes parasitoids, because they're leaving that little, you know, little zombie mummy is still there. You can get some crop contamination potentially. So the lacewing is just eating it completely. You don't have to worry about IDing it. But the downside is in order for a lacewing to reproduce, where a Parasitic wasp only needs one aphid. A lacewing needs, and again, I'm making them, I'm not, I don't have all these numbers memorized, but let's say it needs to eat 20 aphids to get enough protein to reproduce. So a lot of the time it's not getting 20 aphids. So it's, it's not really reproducing. So you're just kind of putting it out almost like a pesticide. You put it out, it crawls around, eats a bunch of aphids, and then it dies. So it's still thing, no matter what, you're always really the most important thing of aphid control is IDing the aphid. And a lot of times from that, you really need to talk to an expert, like a biocontrol company or somebody like that, that can, an entomologist that can actually say, no, that's cannabis aphid or, or whatever. That's always like the first step in most pest control. Make sure you actually know what you're dealing with. Yeah, brilliant answer. And you, you sort of raised two really good avenues I'd love to pursue a little more. I mean, just on the end there, you mentioned the cannabis aphid, which some people will probably be aware of, but yeah, over the past few years, we've seen the emergence of this new sort of aphid, which seems specific for cannabis. I guess the question is, 
do you think that it's inevitable as a cannabis community, so to speak, that it's going to sort of inadvertently cause the development of new and resistant bugs over time? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. Because like I said, I've been around the like, cannabis industry for like 30 years. And that really appeared in Canada exactly when we legalized. And the difference was there. I'm sure it was around. But I mean, it's really just spread almost 100% just by trading of cuttings. And I think there just wasn't that kind of trade in the old black market days of vegetative material. Like it was traded amongst like crews and stuff like that, you know, like groups, but they wasn't traded like wide scale. And that's what we saw as soon as, you know, that LP market got established in Canada, it just both cannabis aphid and root aphid just blew up. Um, and almost, I would, honestly never even heard of it before, probably, I don't know, whatever that happened seven years ago or something. And now it's probably one of the biggest pests in, in, in Canada. Um, so I think the opening of markets really uh, can be a big vector for that because a lot of these are, you've seen the same thing with the hops latent virus where, um, you know, it's really just everywhere. And now it's another one that probably barely existed before because there wasn't that much trading of clones back in the old days. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. I mean, just to take it one more step, maybe towards sort of the more, you know, quote, conspiracy theory stuff. I remember in the past, I used to read people talking about how they used to think that the US government was releasing mites on the side of the road and stuff to to combat sort of vegetative growth. And I always thought that sounded a bit far-fetched. And then I found a document one day which said, like, maybe they're actually doing that. And that's contributed to, like, these mites getting then on cannabis plants and things like that. Have you ever heard or read anything like that? I have, and it, I would say it's probably not as crazy as it sounds, because having grown up in like the 1980s, I remember, like, I've never seen anything to say that was the case. And I'd personally lean away from that being the case. But I mean, if you were around back in the 80s, or I think it was early 90s, I mean, the DEA 100% was releasing fusarium into cannabis crops in other countries. I think there's a fair bit of evidence they probably released it into Humboldt, like in the you know, concentrated cannabis areas. So, I mean, it's not unheard of like that, that for sure using, you know, introducing pests or diseases to control cannabis is a real thing. Like that's a hundred percent verifiable. The DEA did do that. If you look both for cannabis and cocaine, you can look, if you Google, if anyone wants to Google that, I mean, there's a ton of evidence that that happened down in Colombia and elsewhere. Um, the rest of, so, I mean, could they do something like that? I personally doubt it because I mean, at, at the time, it wasn't really something like a russet might wasn't really something that was likely to spread like that, especially back in the black market days. Cause I said, people just weren't, the only way you're going to really spread that around is by trading cuttings. And uh, so I personally doubt it. I think it's probably like most crops, crop pests where if I had to look into russet might, it seems like it kind of emerged probably out of California. I know there's a lot of that similar type of mite on, uh, you know, and, and when we're talking about, have russet mite that's for sure a real thing whether that's the majority of what we're seeing nobody knows because that's that type of mite is called a tersonomid mite and it's like a cyclamen mite a broad mite they're all in that type of class of these tiny little mites nobody knows that much about them so for sure hemp russet mite is a real thing whether that is 100% of all that type of mites we see on cannabis or 1% i don't think anybody really knows so 
if it was hemp russet mite, I would assume it must have had to come from hemp at some point. I don't know the details, but if it's some of those other ones, it could have come from like, for instance, grapes where they get a lot of that or um, fruit crops where they get a lot of that type of tarsonomid mite, you know, and what happens is that I noticed this from where I live is there's a lot of, it's a really intensive agriculture. So you'll get like, let's say corn growing right beside a greenhouse that's full of tomatoes and there'll be one pest on the corn that never, and this is a, even though the corn's only, you know, 10 feet away from the tomatoes, they've got, they don't, the thrips that's on the corn isn't on the tomatoes, but eventually sometimes that jumps. So what'll happen is, you know, one thrips will just be a little bit more genetically adapted to tomatoes. You know, when you're, you know, there's a bazillion thrips landing on those tomatoes from the corn every year, sooner or later you get a couple that are more genetically adapted to that crop. They start reproducing and bang, all of a sudden I've, I've seen that we got a tomato thrips in my town. Um, so I think it's more likely something like that, where, you know, some guy was, you know, growing OG beside a vineyard and, and got some mites in from there, but I mean, who knows, never underestimate the DEA. No, that's, that's some good insight. I, I like that explanation. It's probably, yeah, some sort of blend of the two. Just to jump back to something you mentioned earlier, when I first heard about predators, I remember in every conversation I had, people were just like ladybugs, ladybugs, ladybugs. And I guess as time's gone by, I've sort of heard less and less about them. I also remember that uh, pragmantuses were like also, you know, in that uh, top tier echelon of predators with ladybugs. My question is, in reality, do these predators provide, you know, really effective cover that people talk about? Because I think when you look up online, you know, the little tables which show you, you know, what bugs get eaten by what. Ladybugs and praying mantises are often toted as, you know, they'll eat everything. They're just like the cure-all. Do you think that's maybe not quite the reality of the situation? Um, yeah, so praying mantises, I would just, you can flat out say they're really not a tool. They're a cool thing if you just want to see a praying mantis wandering around in your garden and it will eat some pests. Other than that, I would say, as far as I would be aware, it has absolutely no place in your garden um the reason for praying mantis is pretty simple so it's a lot of what goes on with biocontrol is how what the numeric response is to the pest so how quickly that biocontrol reaper because a lot of the control isn't coming necessarily from your releasing it's coming from what you release building up in the crop like reproducing so something like for instance let's say let's say spider mites so if you were to use persimilis, which is kind of the main thing that people use for spider mite, I think the life cycle reproduction is like seven days or something like that. So every seven days, you're getting a whole new round of persimilis in your crop. Well, praying mantis, I believe it's like once a year, maybe it's twice a year. I don't know. I, I don't know. So really what you're getting is just that one praying mantis that you put in. So that's kind of one of the things that people really miss um, when it comes to that stuff. And then ladybugs is a little bit more complicated where... I think ladybugs is unfortunately the first thing people think of when they think about biocontrol. And it is really one of the least, like outside of the cannabis industry, ladybugs basically aren't even talked about. They're almost a non-issue. Um, and that's kind of for a different reason. So again, we go back to people are saying, oh, they're great. They're generalists. But that's a lot of the time what you don't really want. What you need is like something that's just focused on eating your pests that you have. Otherwise, you can get um, weird stuff. Like I've actually seen this, for instance, on some other um, 
things. Uh, I've seen it once with one of the predatory mites that was a kind of a generalist. Sometimes they've got prey preferences. So we, for instance, put something in for thrips and there was also white fly and it just really liked eating white fly. And the thrips went from almost no thrips to taking down the crop while this predator was busy eating white fly. It doesn't happen all the time, but that's kind of like when you're talking about ladybugs, you never know really what they're going to do. But mostly ladybugs, they're, they're, they are a generalist, but mostly they're focused on aphids. So where that, um, where they're typically used, again, again, none of this is really new, right? We've been using biocontrol on vegetable crops for a long, long, long time as a standard. So it's very dialed in, like which bios have a, which place in the program. So where ladybugs are traditionally used, like their strength is they're really good at like cleaning up a nasty hot spot. So we would, for instance, have these them a lot in peppers, or not a lot, but sometimes. Um, so peppers, you would use parasitic wasps generally to control your aphids. That's kind of like your first plan. Um, because like I said before, because they're late, you know, only need one aphid to reproduce. So they're really good for cycling themselves in the crop. So they don't have to keep introducing them. So we kind of use that. Then we use something called uh, aphidan, which is like a gall midge. So that kind of is more for working more on hot spots. So how a gall midge works is it will instead of laying its eggs in the, in the pest, like um, a parasitic wasp will, it lays its eggs underneath it. So what it'll do is find a real nasty hot spot, lay a bunch of eggs in the hot spot, and then it's the larval stage that eats the aphids. So it's kind of a bit better in hot spots. So that's kind of our backbone of the program is the parasitic wasp. So if we're talking cannabis, it would probably be um, aphibarm, so aphidius matricaria. And then in some situations, we might use um, aphidolides. Um, and then if you had a hot spot, you would use something like, we usually use lacewings, but you could also use ladybugs just to clean up that hot spot, which would be a very small amount. Because the, the, where, where ladybugs outshine some of the other biocontrols is, for instance, aphids, they poop out like a honeydew. So when they're eating all the plant, they, they, they're constantly excreting this kind of sticky substance um, which is just their excrement. And that kind of, if you ever see like a nasty aphid spot, the whole plant will kind of glisten and it's this honeydew that they're secreting. Well, that honeydew, a lot of the biocontrols don't like because they've got to like, they get it on them and they got to spend all their time cleaning the honeydew off instead of actually cleaning up your pests. But ladybugs and others and lacewings, they like it. Like they're, they just get right in there. So other biocontrols, don't really get into those really nasty hot spots, but ladybugs or lacewings do. So that's kind of your place. But for the average, like honestly, if I was a commercial cannabis place, I honestly wouldn't even use them. Like not that's that's little how little I think they actually have a place. No, what a brilliant explanation. You've helped me to sort of piece together many of the little thoughts I've had about ladybugs over the years. So that that's great. Thank you so much. And sort of Another topic which I often hear raised in the discussion of IPM is that it's often only regularly discussed by the people I talk to who are sort of indoor, but now that there's a, a much bigger growing market of people who are able to venture into the outdoor because of changing legalities in their local areas, things like that, I guess it sort of raises the question of how do you make selections between the use of predators in indoor versus outdoor? And I guess the primary aspect I'm interested in is that whenever I talk to people about using it in outdoors, there's sort of this perception that 
the bugs will just disappear into the local environment. Whereas indoor, you know, like it's in a tent and they're going to stay there, so to speak. Do you think that's a bit of a misconception? Are you able to effectively use predators outdoors? Um, it's not a misconception. It's, just, it's not entirely true. So the so basically, it depends on which predator you're using. So if any of the predator mites, you can definitely use them outdoors. Um, they've been used. Um, like I said, one of our some of our largest you know business through our time has been um, in outdoor strawberries, like in California and Florida. That's been standard for decades using predator mites outdoors for um, broad mite and um, spider mite control. So predator mites, they can't fly, right? So they're stuck wherever you put them. So you might have a predator mite that doesn't like the environment and doesn't do very well in it. But generally, if you put a predator mite that does well in that environment, um, they do fine. They're not going anywhere. You don't need to worry about that. So that's definitely not true when it comes to predator mites. You can use them exactly how you're going to use them indoors. And if the environment is correct for them, they're fine. When you get into some of the flying um, predators, then that's a very different story, which I would say nobody, anyone that tells you they know exactly what the answer is to that, I would say they're probably full of it. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. So how a lot of predators, um, like parasitic wasps and stuff work, is they actually smell, um, when, when plants are under attack, they actually kind of let off like a, pheromone type of thing so there's like a scent plume coming from um <clears throat> let's say you got a haze plant that's got whatever aphids or spider mites it's letting off a plume of this like alarm scent um which is there to attract um predators and some predators are very tuned to that so they will you know follow that plume uh, which can travel for really a long way and that's how they find the pests that they need to feed on so the problem is when you're going outside, let's say, you know, you've got an aphid, you're releasing something for aphids. Well, are they attracted to, you know, they might get distracted by, you know, the scent plume coming from a tree in the nearby field, or maybe not. Like I said, so nobody really knows. Like I've definitely seen outdoors in, in uh, cannabis and other crops where that type of stuff did work. I think it's just, it's kind of hit or miss. You really don't know. So you could release something that's going to fly into an aphid spot and then they're, you know, just spreading around your crop or they might like some other aphid species. It's just a really, uh, they might like some other aphid species on a different crop better. It's just a really complex subject that I don't think anybody really knows. So the other thing with outdoors is the pest dynamic is very different, at least in Canada. So we really don't have any of the pests that we're dealing with. Like thrips really haven't proven to be an issue outdoors. I haven't really seen spider mites be an issue outdoors. I think they could be in some environments when it's, where it's drier, maybe. Um, I've seen a little bit of russet mite, but basically a lot of the pest dynamic there is just completely different than what, like there's not necessarily a biocontrol solution. So the main thing that we've been doing on outdoor cannabis is actually um, lace wings. Because the other thing you get into outdoors, it's, it's a lot lower value crop in, especially in Canada, most of it's just going into the extract market. So first of all, they've got a higher tolerance for pest levels because they're just turning it into isolate or something. And um, and you also get na natural predators are coming in too, right? Um, so out there, the kind of strategy that we've seen is like the biggest issue that we've seen that we actually have a solution for is cannabis aphid. And usually that's a self-induced condition where people have had cannabis aphid on their clones that they put in, that they had inside. And then they put them outside and big surprise, you know, you got cannabis aphid 
outside. So what we've kind of been doing is seeding with lacewing eggs. So lacewing eggs are kind of an ex- inexpensive version of lacewings. And we kind of seed the whole crop a couple of times with lacewing eggs with the idea that even though lacewings are probably going to show up naturally outdoors, they might not show up until like August where we can put them in June 1st and then they start cycling in the crop earlier. And that seems to be, I mean, it makes sense from a science level and it seems to have worked. Um, but a lot of the outdoor stuff on cannabis is really, it's uncharted territory. Yeah. Fantastic response. And yeah, it seems like a, a good way to sort of, um, you know, control aphid problems outside. It makes me think, you know, there's so many different types of predators and there's many different formulation types, be it, you know, sometimes it's, you know, maybe predators spread amongst vermiculite. I've had predators arrive that are sort of on actively on the leaves of another product and ready to jump on to your crop, things like that. You get sachets. How do you know what's the best one for you in any given situation? Um, the best one in, for most situations is usually sachets. So the sachets are kind of like the evolution. I think a lot of people don't get it. It's like the evolution of biocontrols. It all kind of started off on bean leaves, for instance. That, that's, for instance, persimilis. So persimilis started off by being reared on bean leaves and people would sell, you know, you get a bean leaf with some persimilis on it. It's also usually got some spider mites on it because by default you had to have spider mites there and, you, and sometimes some other pests. So then from there that evolved into um, having whole greenhouses where they would rear um, a crop. So it's usually done on bean plants. Um, and then they would have infest it with spider mites. Then they would infest that with persimilis. And then there's a special extraction technique where you can basically vacuum off the, just the persimilis and leave the spider mites behind. So, and then the latest technology, which, which we've just developed this year is um, rearing it on a fictitious host. So something other than uh, fictitious host just means something other than its natural prey source. So we just figured out um, that this year is how to, do that so then you don't have any risk of introducing spider mites um you it's a lot more standardized production um and you can actually get better results because you can ship them with food so they've got a higher uh, fecundity which means they can lay more eggs in the crop so anytime when you're buying stuff on bean leaves you're like going back a couple of decades um so kind of the evolution was bean leaves would on the in the case of persimilis or other stuff would have been um, for other types of mites, like for instance, Cucumeris or Swirsky, um, they're or Californicus, they're reared on um, a fictitious host. So it's a, usually a bran mite, which is kind of like a, just a mite that feeds on bran. And basically they're reared in climate rooms with bran, then the bran mite that's eating the bran, and then the Swirsky or the Cucumeris is eating the feeder mite. So kind of the first you know, wave of biocontrol was just selling that loose. So you'd buy the brand with the feeder mite and the um, Swirsky on it. Um, the vermiculite they're talking was actually evolved from that. So vermiculite was a way to get rid of the feeder mites. So some crops are really sensitive to those feeder mites. They can damage certain crops. Um, so they would filter the feeder mites out and put them on vermiculite. So there was no food source for the feeder mite. So that's really the only reason to use something on vermiculite for predator mites is different with other uh, 
with other bios um, would be if you've got a crop that's sensitive to feeder mites, which cannabis isn't, and we don't even use that type of feeder mite that causes damage anymore. Um, or for ornamentals where you don't want the carrier, like let's say you're growing poinsettias or, or cannabis would be the same. You, let's say you're putting a loose application of bran on your cannabis, and then maybe you're doing a foliar spray. Well, that sticks that brand like glue to your leaf or your butt or whatever. And then a lot of times it molds and it's like a contamination issue. So it was traditionally ornamental growers would use that vermiculite product so it didn't stick to the plant. So then the final evolution was these sachets. So what a sachet is, is basically taking that breeding system, the brand, the brand mites and the feeder and the actual predator mite you want and putting it into basically a little envelope that's kind of keeps the humidity up in it. So it keeps like a breeding system going. So um, you're rather than if you put loose material in your crop, you're just getting whatever was in that bottle and then whatever reproduces in the crop. With sachets, it's releasing like, for instance, the regular sachets that we would use in Canada, they usually last about four weeks. So they're constantly releasing predator mites into the crop. Um, so that's for sure always the vast majority of cases, sachets are hands down the better way to go. You don't get contamination of material into your crop because it's contained in the sachet. It's far cheaper because it's breeding it itself um, and you're just getting a continued release. And the other reason is what specifically on cannabis, why the sachets are really a good idea is because in order for predator mites to reproduce, they lay their eggs on specialized plant hair. So kind of like a trichome, um, and people with cannabis probably aren't, you know, exactly what I'm talking about because cannabis doesn't really have the type of trichome that they like. So imagine, you know, a cannabis that's got like the glandular stalked trichome. And then I think they're called capitate sessile ones, or, which is just like kind of like a little hair. So they like to lay their eggs on something similar to like a capitate sessile trichome. It's just like a thin, uh, plant hair. And cannabis doesn't really have a lot of them. It's like, a, they're very specific about the size and everything. So I wouldn't say you don't get any reproduction on cannabis, but you get really low compared to a lot of plants. Like a, a Swirsky or a cucumber will reproduce way better on like a cucumber plant or a pepper plant than it will on cannabis. So because it's not really reproducing that well, you really want to be having a constant source of them releasing into your crop. So that's where the sachets really are, are to me, a hands down, because if you, you hang them in your crop once, they're giving you continual release into the crop for four weeks. Wow, yeah, really comprehensive answer and you, you touched on a few things I'd love to segue into. So that that's perfect. And you know, it's sort of using the, the sachet innovation as a, a springboard. Something else I noticed that you guys are doing really well, which I haven't really seen many other places in terms of innovation, is the the feeding sachets. And I had a few questions around them. I guess most notably uh, you know, sort of at the forefront of my mind is are these feeding sachets sort of something to help you bridge the current predator army you've got to say, you know, a few weeks ahead or are they able to be used sort of indefinitely? And if someone had purchased, you know, a reasonable size amount of predators, they might be able to sustain a pretty good percentage of that population over the long term with regular feed sachet use. Uh, we do have one type for persimilis, which is just a release sachet, which is just it's literally just to stop the carrier from getting in the crop if you're in flower. All the other ones are breeding sachets. So they've got the food and everything in there. Um, so they're, that, that's what's happening is it's for all the food is in that sachet 
and it's like a it's a life system it's a life cycle in there so the, the prey mites it's, it's cycling in there and constantly coming out so there's no such thing as like a feeder sachet there is like some um sometimes we'll put in it's not a big part of the industry but there's two things you can do on top of that which maybe i think you're maybe thinking of is where you're actually putting some food in the crop um, for the predator mites to uh, boost the numbers so you can put we generally use again those feeder mites we'll just sell bottles of just those feeder mites and put them in the crop and that works because it's uh, we prefer so this feeder mites, there's pollen, and there's some other stuff like, like artemia, which is kind of like a brine shrimp, different feeding sources. I'm generally not a big believer in them on, especially on cannabis, because they, I don't find they're needed a ton on that crop. And they also are a big source of contaminants. So to me, I'm like, when you're putting brine shrimp on something like that yourself at the end of the day like somebody's selling might have a shellfish allergy i don't know but it's a source of potential contamination and the same with pollen so all that pollen that people will use on it first of all it can feed thrips um so you're also feeding um the pest where so that's not a good thing um okay it's a complicated issue so there's some situations where i'd say that is a good idea most of the time i'd say no when why we prefer just using the um, the feeder mites is because it doesn't feed the pest. So A.S. or cucumeris, it nutritionally is a lot better for it to eat protein than a, um, like it's going to make it reproduce better. And then you don't have to worry about a thrips. Thrips isn't going to eat a feeder mite. Um, but I think that's maybe what you're thinking about. There's also some other, for some other bios, there's like cards and stuff that can hang in the crop. I'm, like I said, I personally am not a big believer on with it on cannabis for a bunch of reasons. The other thing you got to remember with pollen is all that pollen mostly comes from China and wherever it comes from. So it's, it's cattail pollen and the pesticide residue, not that they're spraying it, but like most stuff has pesticide residue, like maybe it's close to an agricultural crop or whatever, it goes through the water table. Um, so you never know what you're actually introducing into your crop. Like when you're getting residue testing, if you're putting pollen out there, you know, and pollen quite often can have pesticide residue in it on some level. So I think that's probably what you're mistaking. But um, yeah, sachets is just generally a sachet is a breeding sachet and that's a system on its own. Yeah, no, thank you for the clarification. I think I had read about brine shrimp when you were talking about, but yeah, that you answered the question nevertheless. So thank you very much. And I mean, while we're on the topic of crop contamination, something I had heard from primarily soilless growers actually, whenever the topic of predators were raised, was that it sort of always came across as this sort of contrarian thing to say, in my opinion. But they would say, oh, you know, yeah, predator mites, but don't they just eat the bad predators and then they still poo on the plant and then that's contamination, blah, blah, blah. I had never really heard of this being a meaningful issue or something that had sort of been considered a, a realistic detractant from using predators. And then it also negates the point that you've gotten rid of the infestation, which is, you know, sort of the number one goal. What's your view on that sort of opinion that even predators will put excrement on the plant? Is it something you think there's any real merit to worrying about or it's more of a superficial concern to a, a meaningful solution to an actual bug infestation? I think that would be another one that my answer would be both. Um, it can be an issue. It's, I would say it's not generally an issue. It's like anything, you have to use stuff correctly. If it's used correctly, it's a non-issue. So I would first of all caveat like, 
Canada, for anyone like that's not familiar with it, is probably the most regulated cannabis market in the world because it's always been regulated, not always, but since it's been legal, it's been regulated on a federal level by the government. So it's, it's honestly kind of ridiculous how regulated the market is. So everything is like, as far as contaminants, we probably, I would say we 100% have the most regulated market when it comes from that. And it is essentially never come up. The only time I have ever seen it come up, which was issues when it was both the pest, there was pest in the crop that was contaminating it. And yes, there was bios in the crop also that was eating the pest. So I'd say, well, does it really make a difference whether you've got spider mites and persimilis in your contamination? or just spider mites, it's the same thing. So where I would, so I'd say mostly it's a non-issue, but I do think it is a potential issue. So I'd say if you've got pests in the crop anyways, I don't think it really makes any difference. But a lot of the cases, like we're trying not to have pests in there. So that's when um, you really have to have a strategy when you go about it. So the, the issue with those sachets that you need to be aware about. So most stuff, it's not going to reproduce in the crop unless it's got a pest. For instance, like if you put persimilis in a spider mite crop or in a spider mite infested crop, persimilis will keep reproducing in the crop as long as there's spider mites there. Within about a week of there being no spider mites, it just eats, it, it cannibalizes itself and it's gone. So <clears throat> that's really a non-issue. But when you get uh, breeding sachets, it can be an issue because then it's giving a source of food. So that sachet, basically you hang that in your crop, it's releasing uh, feeder mites and predator mites in your crop for about four weeks. So when, with our program, we always front load something. So for instance, in cannabis or like Swirsky or Californicas, we would only ever put sachets in like right when your crop's going into flowering, that's kind of like you do once the start of veg, basically like, let's say you're vegging for three weeks, you're going to put sachets in then to cover your veg area. You put them into flower, you put another round of sachets in because the first ones would have expired. And then that's going to kind of protect you up until your buds start to stack, you know, for three or four weeks. What you don't, and I do see people do this sometimes, what you really don't want to do is be hanging them like in week four, and then you've got sachets that are releasing right until week eight. Well, 100%, you are going to get not just fecal matter contamination, but actual mite contamination. Is it a big issue? Not really. I don't think you, most of the time you'll even see it, but I personally wouldn't do it. To me, like you really want to finish that you know, the last half of your crop with nothing in it. Like there should be no pests there. There should be no biocontrols in it. So, I, so it's like one of the things that people blow it up the way people talk about it. I'd say that that's really not an issue. Yes. The predator mites poop. Absolutely. So to pests. Like, so it's, it's one of those things you just need to time the applications properly. And it's, and it's a non-issue. Yeah, a great answer there. I guess, as you mentioned, in an ideal world, the second half of the, the fruiting, the flowering phase, there's sort of ideal conditions. But in a sort of more realistic world, one of the questions which time and time again comes up is, how do I fight off uh, an infestation that I've only just realized is there at like week four, week five, you know, so you're on that second half, you know, it's a tough question, I understand, but I guess I'm always interested, how would you personally go about tackling, say, a mite infestation that really only been picked up around week four, week five of flower? Yeah, there's not a great answer for that, because there, it's one of those things that there's, can, will bios do help you there 
yes. Can they turn again? If we're talking about Spider-Man specifically, you're really that's getting to the point where it's the point of no return. So what happens with predator mites is because they're, you know, they live on the underside of the leaf primarily. There's walking around the leaf. Like that's how they hunt. Um, and they'll walk, like if you put a predator mite on, you know, one leaf, it'll walk up the whole plant, walk to the next plant if the leaves are touching, like they get around. But like the, you know, trichomes, that's what they're there for is to protect the plant against bugs, right? So predator mites, they'll get stuck in the trichomes, like it's toxic to them. They get stuck, physically get stuck to it. Um, you know, the terpenes probably in some varieties are anti, you know, they're probably mitocidal. Um and also just the buds, just from physical, like when you get, you know, a dense bud, a predator mite can't literally walk through it. So let's say you have spider mites. I see this is a pretty common problem where somebody doesn't pay, and they don't pay attention. All of a sudden they're like, holy cow, I got spider mites and it's week six or something like that. And then they want to put stuff on. Well, like you basically have to put the persimilis on every leaf you want it because it can't walk through the buds. So there's some tricks that you can kind of like you can do it but like so on a home garden it's doable on a commercial garden it's pretty much impossible because you just like that's biocontrol you're relying on the biocontrol to do the work for you of walking through the crop and finding the pests and they just can't do it anymore um so there's stuff you can do but a lot of that time you're really getting into physical controls like you're getting into you know wiping the leaves with moist cloths or, or, you know, in commercial, really your only option is, you know, you could spray them a bit with water to break them up. And the main option is physical removal, just going through deleting this stuff and hoping for the best. There's really, people want to hear that's a great solution. The great solution is pay attention to your crop earlier on because you didn't just get spider mites in week four. This doesn't happen. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, and I guess that's one of the reasons why, you know, we sort of advocate, you know, spend time with your plants. You'll, you'll pick up on these things. I guess one of the options people would maybe consider as you sort of referenced it, that uh, week four, week five infestation stage is they might think, oh, I've got to spray with something. Uh, what's your what's your thoughts on neem oil? I, I think something which I've heard of a little bit is there's maybe a little bit of a misconception, like people get predators and then they spray neem oil and I'm like, oh, I think you're killing the predators there. Um doesn't really seem to be clear consensus in some people's minds. What's your thoughts on neem oil? And would you ever use it in the presence of already released predators? Um, I think neem oil probably has a place. I've definitely, I've used it long, long ago. We run into it a fair bit. I generally steer away from it. And in Canada, in Canada, neem oil for reasons beyond me is really highly regulated. So it doesn't actually come up like you're not allowed to use it. You're not even allowed to sell it. So I have had a fair bit of experience with people using it. So I'd rather than focus on neem, I would say just generally any type of botanical is a good idea to stay away from with biocontrol. So I would say two things. One, I've never seen anybody actually control pests properly with them. People all swear by it, but they still all have spider mites or thrips. And it, I, neem is definitely a powerful tool. I mean, we both know that in certain situations. Um, in specifically in using it with biocontrol, most, and again, most of our business is in conventional agriculture. So we've got a lot of experience with side effects, like the, the side effects of pesticides of all kinds on beneficial insects. Every time, not every time, but most, a lot of our problems when you come into side effects 
on beneficials come from botanicals. That botanicals have a, just like they're having an effect on your mites at some level, they're also having an effect on your predator mites. So I generally steer clear of them completely, um, not just neem to rule it out. I, my personal view is I'm big on like, if I want to spray, I mean, like soaps work great if you use them well. Soap is just like the second it's dry, you can put predators in. There's no residual, like they're good to go. Um, same with some of the, um, the fungus, like the, you know, Bovaria and stuff like that, the uh, entomopathogenic fungi, those are generally useful. I personally, like after, like I said, I've kind of grown up around all of it. I've grown up around the cannabis scene. I've grown up around big commercial greenhouses where they spray a lot of pesticides and I've grown up around Colbert where we use a lot of biocontrol. I personally on cannabis would almost never spray. Like that's one of the things that people, uh, I really, in the majority of situations, I would never spray for a pest. And I'm not just saying that because I sell biocontrol. I honestly think you get better control with biocontrol than you will with sprays most of the time. Um, that's one of the big myths I find in biocontrol is people really underestimate how strong biocontrol and they, is and they overestimate how strong some magic potion is. Yeah, a brilliant answer. I, you sort of touched on just the topic just in your answer of, you know, sort of biocontrol myths. I'd be interested to hear, are there any other sort of common biocontrol myths that you find yourself dealing with? Um, probably, I mean, that's a big one is just that people really underestimate. They really don't get how powerful it is. Like I said, a lot of people, um, like I said, I would like to use my example of when I came from Coper, came to Coper initially, I had this, I had the same perception where I thought it was kind of like this, you know, it's, it's good. You're not, you're not affecting the environment. It probably don't work that well, but you know, you know, it, it's environmentally sound, blah, blah, blah. And the first, literally my first day at work at Coper they took me to this greenhouse that was just the highest um, pest pressure I've ever seen in my life. And they had literally switched to bio to almost entirely biocontrols because the pesticides just didn't work. So not that pesticides didn't work. They needed to use them so frequently that the pests had just become resistant to them all. So it was like in a normal situation, yeah, that pesticide works great if you use it once or twice a year, not if you're using it you know, 50 times a year. And so that was really eye-opening to me that when you got into a situation like that and you're like, wow, like they're not even, this is the highest pest pressure I've ever seen in my life. And they're not even using any pesticides. They're literally just battling it with biocontrol and it's winning. So that's one of the big things I think people just need to wrap their head around. It's really a strong tool. Um, one of the other ones that comes up all the time is the climate. So definitely people... Like there's definitely differences with um, different biocontrols have different climate preferences, but people really overcomplicate this. So like, first of all, like most crop plants grow in the same rough, you know, temperature and relative humidity um, situations. Um, so like you never have, to, so people are like, oh, I don't want to use persimilis because I've got these special climate conditions. I have, like I said, I've worked here for 15 years. I've basically never seen anyone with a special climate condition um, that you couldn't use biocontrol. With one caveat, if you're growing some crops, nothing to do with cannabis that's really cold, then that's a situation. On cannabis, it always works fine. Um, do they work as well as they would in an optimized climate? Like, for instance, one of the big things is relative humidity. So a lot of predator mites, they really like a, a higher relative humidity. Um, 
So, you know, and you know, when we're finishing, you know, especially indica strains, you're going really way down like 40, 45% relative humidity. That's definitely not ideal for a predator mite. But <clears throat> one of the, uh, the, one of the agricultural research stations near where I live actually did a big, uh, like a peer reviewed journal article years ago on this. And they actually measured the climate conditions on the phyloplane, which is the, you know, the immediate leaf surface, uh, you know, the underside of the leaf. And what they found is that phyloplane, which is, that's specifically where the predator mite is living. It's a huge buffer against the environment. So even though we're going down, and again, I'm, I'm making these numbers up, so don't hold me verbatim to them, but like, let's say you're cranking your relative humidity down for late flowering at like, you know, 40 or 45, that phyloplane um, climate it's probably still like 70 or something like that. Like it's very hard to deviate to make that microclimate change because they are, um, because of the stomata. So the, first of all, like the leaf is kind of shielding it from the light. The stomata is one of the big things is, you know, it's letting it water vapor underneath the leaf. So in the, you know, we're just talking about, you know, quarter of a millimeter or something like that. It's still humid there. So they, it's not as big of a deal as they think about it. And it's, it's honestly something that unless your temperature is under like 20% or 20 degrees Celsius all the time, you don't really need to worry about it. Um, they, there are people will be like, Hey, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's um, the, their eggs dehydrated at a low relative humidity. That can sometimes be true for sure, but you can still use biocontrol. Yes. Maybe it just doesn't reproduce as well. Um, we've, like I said, biocontrol has been absolutely standard in Canada um, for cannabis production since the start of legalization. So I don't know how many years that is quite a few. Um, it's, it's a well-proven thing. Um, it less so in the U.S. just because of a, a couple other reasons, just because they had more pesticides and it was less regulated. But for sure in Canada, everybody's been using cannabis um, or biocontrol on cannabis since the start. Everyone has very similar climates. It works fine. Yeah, brilliant explanation there. And given your experience in the Canadian market, a question which a lot of the American listeners are often sort of interested in is, what do you think will be some of the biggest pest issues facing the cannabis market, for example, in the US, as it continues to expand and get bigger and more people get involved? Yeah, well, there's two things. The biggest pest issue, I think, is probably always going to be thrips and spider mites. But they're also ones that there's good tools for. They're fairly easy to control. Um, might be a little bit different when you get into down in the more southern parts of the U.S. So one of the things you get is like, for instance, if we look at thrips, that's for sure like one of the big issues. Um, but we've got a lot of good tools. Like all the biocontrols work really well on thrips. But 99% of all the thrips we deal with in Canada and northern U.S. is western flower thrips or onion thrips. And we know biocontrol works really well on that, but there's thousands of different types of trips. So when you get down into like, you know, Southern Florida, probably Southern California, any of those Southern areas, there's a lot of different types of trips that biocontrol doesn't work for. So that could emerge as, a, as an issue where there's just not any great tools, like not the traditional tools don't work. That's to be seen right now. I would say the bigger issue is most likely aphids um, because, and maybe hemp russet, maybe russet mite for two reasons or for one the same reason is there's not a lot of great solutions for it so aphid control is really challenging there are some great solutions for it but the thing with aphids is they live birth so when when you get one aphid in your garden 
um, they're already like, they don't need to sexually reproduce. So they've already got all their babies inside them ready to go. And I believe some entomologists will probably correct me, but I'm pretty sure those babies are literally like the second they come out, they've already got babies ready to go. So they reproduce at a scary rate. Like I've seen multiple times where someone's literally got like one cannabis aphid in their garden and you come back three weeks later and like the whole garden's ready to come down. So we have predators that work really, really well on them. It's really hard to get rid of um, all of the aphids though. So like the thing when something's like that, you literally have to get, when it reproduces that fast, you need to get rid of every single aphid to control the problem. And that doesn't really happen very often either with spraying or um, biocontrol. It does happen if you've got like a real, you know, heavy synthetic systemic spray, you can get rid of aphids with one treatment, but I don't think that's likely to be an option. So I think that's going to be a real challenge just because biocontrol for aphids as all, we kind of know what all the tools are when it comes to biocontrols. And we know that it's, it's, it's challenging to get rid of aphids hundred percent. It's pretty easy to control them 80%, but you don't necessarily, especially with cannabis, but it is really for anyone that doesn't have them, don't get them. They are absolute nightmares. Um, it's basically, it's essentially impossible to get rid of them once you get them. So just don't get them. Everyone brings them in on clones. Like it's very preventable, it's a preventable pest, but it's not a particularly controllable pest. And then russet mite or whatever, any of those tarsonomid mites, they haven't really emerged too much as a pest so far in Canada. I know that it was more of an issue down in California and Colorado, but it does have the potential just because um, they kind of have a niche where predator mites generally are pretty good at controlling stuff like russet mite, but again, they're hard to control them 100%. So a russet mite or a broad mite, they're really tiny, so they're a lot smaller than a um, predator mite. So that's kind of their evolutionary niche is they can get into spots where the, where the predators can't get. So for instance, if you got a plant in flowering, it can go way deep into a trichome stand where a Swirsky, even though it can eat it, or a Californicus can eat it, it can't get in that in that uh, stand. And you get same thing it can go like in growing tips and stuff. So generally, what we've seen again, I'm looking not just at cannabis but other crops. Usually, when people use biocontrol as a main standard, those pests like russet mite or broad mite aren't much of an issue because preventatively they do a really good job of stopping them from ever getting established. And it's kind of why I think maybe you saw that emergence in the early days out of California and um, Colorado, nobody was really using predators that much back then. So, and you don't hear about it as much. And we've definitely had a couple of outbreaks in Canada at LPs, but it's been very, very low, but it could be like the potential. And they're ones that's very easily spread through cutting material. And that's the one thing I've seen in the legalized industries is really a, just an unprecedented amount of spreading of clones between facilities. And that's something that could easily get going. But if I had to pick one, it would be hundred percent cannabis aphid. Second would probably be root aphid. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly two pests I've seen cause havoc in a variety of different grow environments Something I was hoping to get your opinion on is I'd noticed I'd been to a few bigger facilities when I'd been over in the States and it sort of seemed to me like when a facility got to a certain size, 
it just sort of reached this critical mass and pest infestation was almost inevitable from what I had seen. And admittedly, limited number of sites I'd been to. You've probably been to many more larger facilities than I have. Would you agree that you've seen that sort of thing happen regularly or is my experiences maybe a little skewed and that's not what normally happens? No, it's definitely true. We've also seen it on other crops. So there's a general rule. As, as the facility gets bigger, the pest issues get bigger also. Um, I think it's for a bunch of reasons. I think more of it though is like, I've definitely seen, cause I've kind of seen this evolve and you get um, even, you'll get guys that when they've got small scenes, you're kind of on top of like, for instance, thrips is one of the things like I've seen and same with spider mites. I've seen guys that have literally, they've been growing for like 10 years on, you know, they maybe got a 40 lighter. They've never had thrips. And all of a sudden they get them and they can never get rid of them. Are the thrips under control? They're like, yes, like they're using biocontrol, it controls them. But I think it's like one of those things, like once you get thrips in your crop, that's like, that's just one of the big things that I think people don't understand properly when it comes to pests is the difference between like a thrips or any pest and a thrips that's adapted to the crop that you're in. So when you get a thrips that, you know, let's say you get a thrips infestation, by default, you know, you've got a gazillion thrips in there. Some of them really like cannabis, right? And those tend to be the ones that reproduce. So then you get them really um, adapted to your environment. And they're really hard to get rid of because, like, again, all you need is, you know, one or two thrips, I guess two thrips. And so, you you know, maybe you don't have them for, it looks like you don't have thrips for two months and then they come back. Well, it's just because you didn't, it's almost impossible to get rid of every single thrips out of your facility. So I think when those guys were smaller, it wasn't, they could go a long time without ever getting thrips, but now they're bigger. Eventually it comes in from somewhere. And once you get them, you've got them for good. Like thrips, just, if you look at any other crops, which is just like a standard, like anyone that thinks they're never going to have thrips is dreaming. Like they're just, a, they're everywhere, right? They're outside in the grass. They're coming in on your workers. They're coming in on eggs in your plant material like there's too many avenues for them to come in so um yeah i think that would be my answer for that one yeah okay i mean you've got me sort of thinking now what might be some of the sort of specific challenges the cannabis plant presents in a biocontrol program or like for example even just the environment you know are there any sort of room conditions which might make biocontrol more challenging or more easy in fact yeah the biggest i mean the biggest room condition it generally hasn't been much of an issue the one thing i've had now that people have kind of dialed in their systems i don't see it as much but back when those first facilities started getting built you know large scale i saw a bunch of times where people had um, their horizontal airflow fans just mounted too low and there seemed to be a pressure all right some guys that really like to, you've probably seen like you go into their crop and you're like, man, it's like a tropical storm in here. You know, the plants are bending over. They've just got so much fans going on them. And that's the only thing that I've really seen in cannabis production that's caused a big issue. So for instance, we had a facility that had a big, they had a thrips problem, but the thrips problem was only around the perimeter of the room. And what it was, was in the perimeter of the room, those fans, were creating like a microclimate. They were just basically drying out the leaf so much that the predator mites just couldn't live on there. So the predator mites were working fine in the middle of the room, 
But when it got close to the fans, they, the thrips were taking over because the thrips were able to, uh, you know, tolerate that high wind. So that's really been the main thing that I think we've seen. And it's not that common. It's kind of now that people really should, plants don't really like to be grown in a tropical storm condition. Um, people have moved away from that. Um, the plant itself definitely presents some challenges. And one of the biggest, so there's two, the two main challenges is one that a lot of uh, predator mites don't reproduce on it the way they reproduce on other crops. Um, so like I said, if I kind of got into this before where they, they really need that specialized plant hair to lay their eggs on. And I think you get some, like I definitely seen some reproduction, but if I compare it to like a pepper crop or a cucumber crop, it's nothing compared to those crops. Like they really, those are ones you could literally like put in a little bit of loose stuff in one corner and you come back, you know, two months later and there's predator mites like over your whole crop. With cannabis, you really need to put the constant supply in there to keep the numbers up high enough. So that's one thing that people, they try and extrapolate what's gone on in other crops and you can't really do it from peppers to cannabis. It's a different crop. So you really want to make sure you've got, again, not during, during peak flower, but you want to have a, a continuous source of predator mice, which usually means sachets. Um, and then the other thing that people, you really need to front load it. So like, for instance, like a pepper crop or a, a lot of other crops, um, you've got like a long window to control your pests in like a pepper crop goes for like a year in a greenhouse. Um, with cannabis, I mean, I don't know what the average, if you have to look at, I mean, probably the average guy's vegging for like two weeks and then they've got another two or three weeks in flowering before the buds are too stacked up to control them properly. So you've got at best a four or five week window to work with. So you can't use conventional rates. So for instance, on a vegetable crop, you might put 10 per meter per stimulus in because it's got, you know, months to control those spider in cannabis, you maybe got four or five weeks. So, I mean, instead of 10, you're putting in like a hundred or something like that. So that's something you really need to compensate. You really need to go hard, like front load everything. You want to be treating your, it really starts at your mom's. You want to make your, you really want to just start from the, from the start of the whole thing. And then you're ramping off as you get into flowering. Not what a lot of people do is go, holy cow, I got a big problem. And then they start ramping up as you go into bio as into flowering. You really want a strong preventative approach and to be on those things before your buds stack up. Once you're in like, you know, depending on the strain, you know, once the first, I find most strains, it's like the first third of flowering is the stretch period, like the veg period. So you really want to have all your pests controlled done within that first one third. Yeah, a, a brilliant sentiment. Hopefully people can start implementing that one so they don't find themselves in the, uh, the dreaded week four, week five surprise of finding the the russet mites are actually everywhere. Sort of got me thinking about the future of IPM strategies and pest management. And something I was hoping you might have some insight into is it's anecdotally said that various strains have different susceptibility to pests. It's sort of long anecdotally been said that plants with the strong blueberry lineage are like almost like magnets for pests. At least that's been some of my experience. Do you think these sort of anecdotes are true that like certain phenotypes or certain strains are just inherently far more susceptible to pest infestation? And as a follow-up, do you think that breeding for pest resistance might become a more focal part of pest management in general in the future? Yeah, it's a hundred percent true. Like there's no doubt about that. We've seen it so many times. Um, with, I've seen it in LPs. I've seen it like it's a standing joke in the Canadian cannabis 
community. There was this clone going around called, uh, people call it the Perps or Vancouver Island uh, Purple Indica. And it is the, every person I've known that's had this thing, it is the most pest prone thing you've ever got. Like if you've got an aphid in the garden, it's on this clone. It just, and partly I think it's really old clones. So when plants get older, they become more attractive to pests. But it's definitely like this clone is a pest magnet. We actually do at Copra, we are actually doing research on, on, uh, on cannabis aphid control. And we specifically actually used that clone because we knew the cannabis aphid just loved it. And I've seen it a lot. I don't think anyone can like, I think we're definitely we've seen, for instance, sativa, like really sativa ones. Um, they tend to get uh, thrips really early, but again, it, depends. It's, it, it comes down to the terpene thing. I think there's, it's, so it's so variable. I've definitely seen a lot of hazes really get thrips um, bad. Um, I think terpene is one of the bigger issues and where I think people overthink it. So is this, can breeding be done on it? Probably. I personally think it's more of a disease thing than pest thing. I think stuff like that purple indica clone will just naturally get called out of the population because who the heck wants to deal with, with that. Um, I think disease resistance is very much an uh, something that needs to be done and will be done in breeding specifically for powdery mildew and, and botrytis. Um, pest one, I'm not, I'm not sure. I do. I've definitely seen some people steer themselves wrong where they're like, no, no, I'm not going to grow any haze because I know I heard that haze gets whatever thrips or something else. And the, I mean, you know, you know yourself, like it's not so, <laughs> it's not like any of the strains that are so, um, stable like every different phenotype is slightly different so i think you got people that are like i'm not growing og kush because it's this and i was like well one og if you grow a pack you're probably gonna get one that really gets thrips and another one that thrips won't even go close to it so it's not so black and white and i've definitely seen some lps getting into that where they're like i'm not growing that because it's this strain and and they're like dude like all hazes aren't the same um it's not you can't make those blanket statements but definitely from clone to clone that is not a urban legend that is for sure real that some stuff is far more susceptible to different tests than others yeah okay that's really interesting to hear and good to know it's uh it's not all in my head Another question I was interested in is that I've noticed there can be sort of a variability in activity levels of some of the mites I've gotten. Are there any recommendations you have that can help ensure once I do have the predator and I'm releasing it in the garden that I'm sort of getting the most out of them? You know, are there any sort of factors which I may unawaringly hindering them or, uh, you know, accidentally killing them off after releasing them? Um, not too much. Usually if there's an issue with like the only two real issues is like spraying is one, um, excess airflow is another of just like, like direct on the plant. But the one thing I would, I'd caveat that statement with is that they definitely like predator mites, like there's a lot to them. So you, there's definitely suppliers on the market that probably sell some pretty crappy predator mites. Um, but what I would caveat is I would say, um, like I run, you know, part of my job is I kind of oversee a lot of the the sales complaints and stuff that come in. And I would say the vast majority of complaints that we get, um, for especially for predator mites, they're just perceived complaints. They're not, there's not actually anything wrong with the product. So like, they're hard to see, like, especially if you don't know what you're looking, like, if you're not really trained for what you're looking for. And a lot of people, they're just looking at it with a bare eye. Well, I've been doing this for like half my life and I can't tell you without a microscope. So 
there's a couple of things to keep in mind. So one, predator mites, because they're so tiny, like they're really hard to count. So what you can definitely get is a real thing. Like, let's say you buy a bottle of persimilis. Let's say it's supposed to be 10,000 in it. Most of the time, there's more like 15 or 17,000 in there because they overpack everything. And I'm sure we're not the only company that does that because you need to guarantee there's 10,000. You can't have somebody sitting there. It's very difficult to calculate exactly how much is in there. So people overshoot it. So let's say we're, and don't hold me to these numbers, but it's definitely like this. Like it's, okay, you're way over the spec. And then maybe there's a, like, first of all, those populations fluctuate a little bit. So the same amount of material one week might have whatever, 10,000 mites. The next week might have 17,000 mites. So it fluctuates and you get people, what people don't get is we're guaranteeing a minimum and quite often they're getting way more than that. And then what happens is, yeah, there's some weeks that you're actually getting what we say you're getting. And, but you get used to seeing something and it's, it's not accurate. You know what I mean? You're getting used to seeing way more than you were actually paying for. That's definitely a, a big, a, a big issue. Um, and the thing also with predator mites, people don't get like, there's a, there's not like, there's some bios that are difficult to ship. Predator mites are one of the easiest things to ship because they've got a, because you're not shipping them dormant. Like there's a food source in there. So they're just alive and at room temperature most of the time. So they, there's not really a whole lot to go wrong in transport. So does it happen? Sure. Sometimes, absolutely. But it's a very small percentage of the time. That, that's great. That answers what I was wondering almost perfectly. So up next, we actually had a, a question submitted from one of our Patreon listeners. And they basically said, look, you know, <laughs> I love the, I'm just going to read it word for word because I love the way they've worded it. They say, thrips are the devil. They naturally occur outdoors in my area and it's impossible to grow a plant without getting them. I've knocked them down before, but they always come back. If the plant stays healthy and they don't take them over, it's just a constant fight without pesticides. Beneficials help, but they don't seem to ever reproduce enough to keep up. Have you got any suggestions? Yeah, so I think, and you do get some air, like the the outdoor kind of ambient level of thrips can vary a lot between different places like I always remember I had a greenhouse um like I said I grew where I live is like there's literally 3,000 acres of greenhouses within 20 minutes of me so I've seen like a lot of pest pressure and like I've seen a lot of crops and but I also do all over I work all over Canada and I remember being out in the prairies once and which is a drier grassy kind of habitat and we could never control thrips at this one facility and I remember trying to put my finger on like what was going on. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to hang some sticky cards outside to see like what the outside pressure of thrips was. And this was like a a 10 acre greenhouse or something. And I hung a yellow sticky card outside one end of the greenhouse. And then I drove to the end, which maybe took, you know, two minutes or something like that and hung, hung another one. And just on a fluke on the way back, I was like, I'll just check that first card and see if it caught anything yet. And that first card had like, you know, 10,000 thrips on or something where, where I live, it would have like one, if that. Um, so it's really can be different. So you definitely can get some areas where you're just getting a crazy amount of thrips coming inside. So I don't know whether he's outdoors or, or in a greenhouse or indoors. Indoors, there's definitely a lot of buffer between you. So I'd say if you're getting a big problem in a small indoor place, you're probably making the problem yourself, even though you don't want to admit it. Um, so Basically, where I think most people go wrong in SERPs control is they, or not most people, but when there's a problem, it's 
generally to, the, to do with this issue is predator mites, they're only, they are your best, your kind of baseline attack. But predator mites, doesn't matter what kind, they're only, used, they're only eating the first end star of thrips. So that's, thrips will lay its egg on the plant and then that egg hatches out into the first larval stage, which is kind of like a little worm that, that has no wings and can just crawl around and, and feeds. So thrips or a swirsky or cucumeris, they only eat that one stage. So once it gets past that stage, if you're just using predator mites, there's all these thrips in your crop that you're not controlling at all. And then an adult thrips in some, te in some temperatures, it'll last like a month, two months, even longer. So that can be like your whole crop where you've got this big thrips problem and you're putting in swirsky thinking you did something, but you've got all these adult thrips flying around, you know, causing chaos that nothing is controlling. So you really have to go a multi, same with any pest, you need to go with a multi-pronged approach. So for there, you're going to put your predator mites as your kind of base level control, but then you need to put something else in to get those other stages out of the equation. And the best, especially on cannabis, because it really likes the cannabis plant is a product or trade name is Thripor, but it's uh, Aureus. And that's like a predatory bug. So it can fly around and it, they're like thrips killers. Like they're generous, but they really like killing thrips. And you put like, they will literally turn, get rid of all the thrips in like a week. Usually the problem with like, and they go after all the different stages. The problem is if you were to not put the predator mite and just put in the thripor or the aureus is they'll eat all your thrips and then they die off because there's no food. And then there's a whole bunch of thrips eggs in the leaf, which two weeks later hatch out. And then there's no predator for them and bang, you've got a thrips problem again. So that's why you always want that overlapping, you know, the predator mites are controlling any new stuff coming up. And then the thripor is killing any of the larger stages. Another one that doesn't work quite as well, but it's a, it's a viable strategy is to use a lot of sticky cards. So um, sticky cards will uh, catch the adult thrips that are attracted to it. So you can also use that combination where you're using the predator mites to go after those young stages, the sticky cards to go after the, to catch the adults. So I, most of the time when I see people have issues with thrips, it's because they're ignoring those other life cycle stages. I guess it sort of segues into the future of products, you know. A lot of uh, recent and interesting new technologies are emerging in the Predator and IPM industry. And one that we've been talking about a little bit at the start of our episodes is um, some of the new technology you guys have been working on, particularly the one that caught my eye was the Spidex Vital. That proof of predation technology was really interesting from my perspective because it gives you that real-time feedback on the activity levels of the mites with that um, you know changing color sort of technology do you think that that'll become a new industry standard having these sort of built-in features around predators and do you have any other cool things on the horizon you might be able to let us know about um so I don't know that. So that's an interesting one because the, the, so what happens is when you buy the predator mite, it's translucent. So you can see through it. So, and then when it eats spider mites, it turns bright red. So that was kind of a side effect of something else. So that spider mites was that one, like I said, it was the last remaining predator mite that nobody could figure out how to rear on something other than its natural prey source. So it's a, it's a consequence of eating spider mites that makes it red. So in the old, up until this year, we used to rear them on spider mites. So they'd be red when you bought them. Um, now we've figured out how to rear them on a different food source 
Um, so they're actually not red. And it's a really cool thing because you put them into the crop and they're clear and they instantly, so there's no doubt about whether they're working. You're like, well, are they red? Okay, well, then it's eating spider mites. Like it's that clear because that's the only thing that can make them red. But it wasn't there as an indicator. It was just something that was kind of a cool thing that, um, that you know, was an added benefit. Um, so that was kind of the last one for like all the other predator mites were always like that. So I don't know whether that will be uh, where the future, I, I honestly don't know where the future, a lot of it will probably be some new, predator mites is really the forefront of the of biocontrol. It's, you know, not for some pests like aphids and white fly or white fly a little bit, but um, just because they're really, they're cost effective because they're quite inexpensive to rear. And um, versus like if you're using some of the other you know, macro type of bios, like a parasitic wash and stuff, generally they've got to uh, be reared on a pest and that's cost prohibitive because you've got to have a greenhouse with a crop in it. Then you got to pest. It's just, so I, I'm going to guess that probably more along those lines of rearing stuff on fictitious hosts um, is going to be the future and, pro and possibly some new, you know, new biologicals that, um, you know, maybe there's a new, a different parasitic wasp that doesn't exist, that isn't commercialized right now. That's really good on, you know, better on cannabis aphid or a different predator mite that's really good on hemp russet mite. There's probably stuff like that in the future, but that, yeah, I, I just sell them. They tell me that when it's, when it's ready to sell, I don't, I don't get too much of the privy on the, on the behind the scenes, the R and D and sorry, what was the other part of your question for that one? I, I guess the other question was, do you think these sort of, features like for example the proof of predation and things like that will sort of start to become integrated as sort of mainstays in predators to or do you think that's just a, a one-off sort of situation yeah i think that's just a one-off i mean that proof of predation is there it's just less noticeable i think it's more that people are gonna like we're really at an infant level especially in the cannabis industry in understanding biocontrol um like cannabis people think they're so innovative but honestly like most of the other crops are years ahead of them when it comes to understanding biocontrol. They've just been using it for a long time. So for instance, that same proof of predation, I mean, you can see with Swirsky mite that it changes color depending on which pest um, it has. Like I can look in a crop and look at the color of your Swirsky and tell you whether you get a pest problem or not because of the shade of amber it is. But, you know, there's lots of stuff like that. Um, so I think that just the general understanding has a lot of room to to come up. I think most people are not at a, it's really, it's changed rapidly in cannabis, you know, in those years, because that's the first time where I said a lot of the industry I'd say is a little bit, maybe ahead is the wrong word, but the cannabis industry has definitely evolved way faster because it's the only industry where they literally got like some dude with a PhD in biocontrol that's running their biocontrol thing, but it's just, it's a newer crop, right? So it wasn't that common before legalization to use biocontrol yeah okay yeah no, that's that makes sense for sure it's it's definitely a, a new crop where not everything is the same as prior one of the sort of final questions i wanted to ask you that was of personal interest to me because i am unapologetically biased towards organic grow styles do you think that organic grow styles sort of have a innate better chance to fight off pests than cocoa or do you think it's relatively an even battlefield Oh man, you're trying to make an internet, uh, give me some internet haters. Views expressed are mine alone and not yours. <laughs> <clears throat> so 
this is going to get a whole lot of hate, but I would say unanimously and Cobra's like a big company. So like we're all over the world and there's like literally some of the top pass control people in the world work for us. I would say pretty much unanimously everyone that I work with in Cobra and in commercial greenhouses thinks that's largely a bunch of hokey. Um, I have not seen that. I think it's probably like most things. There's a bit of both things. I've honestly seen the most pest infested crops as a general rule are the organic ones, not the conventional ones. And I'm an organic guy. I really believe in organic agriculture. I'm just telling you the truth. And I think what agriculture, what people miss about organic stuff is like one of the missing links is like the nutrition levels. Like, so you get a plant, it's very hard to dial in the nutrition, especially in the greenhouse or indoors where it's like a really intensive, you know, lighting regime and stuff like that to get a properly dialed in, um, plant for nutrients in my opinion is way easier with synthetic with synthetic fertilizer and you'll see even if you've ever read steve solomon's book who's one of the you know gurus of organic it's one of the things that he discovers once you start looking into like the nutritional value of organic food yeah it doesn't have pesticide residues and it's probably got a lot of attributes for like you know maybe it's got higher antioxidants and stuff but when you start looking at like okay well how much calcium does it have in it or how much phosphorus does it have in it a lot of times the organic stuff is really low compared to synthetic. Not that it's not possible, but that's just the reality. So I think that's part of the problem. Like, a healthy, like I said, I think a healthy plant is more resistant to diseases, but I think, or pests and diseases, but I also think it's, it's definitely overinflated. I'm not going to be an expert or a, you know, the, the word, but like I've seen, I, there might be something to it, but when you see, like, I've just seen thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of crops. And a lot of times pests show up willy-nilly. They're not necessarily going for the weakest plant. That does happen sometimes. But a lot of times it's just like, they just show up randomly. So let's say it's not as true as everybody thinks. And, and I think a lot of it comes down, it's not to do with whether it's organic or conventional. It's to do with what the nutrition level is in the plant. That actually makes sense. I want I, I want to believe, man. I literally have come from that. Like I I literally was in Amsterdam in like 95 when uh, Positronics used to do like, tea. they were like the original proprietors of, of no-till. I was there. Like I learned from those guys and I actually, I'm a, I'm a no-till non-believer. I'll just, I'll just say it. Not a non-believer, but I've been there and I've left and I will never go back. I just, I think there's a lot of, I, I'm not convinced that that's the best plan on multiple levels. And I know that's a, a heavily, a highly unpopular opinion, but that's my. <laughs> no, that's good. And you know, it also, it makes me start thinking that, you know, there's sort of a lot of variables in the equation because as you said, it actually totally makes sense to me that the worst gardens you see with infestations are organic because if they're utilizing the things we've touched on earlier like neem and things like that in an attempt to stay organic but uh you know maybe somewhat ineffective whereas maybe you know the soilless guys are a little more ready to use some of the more bang for your buck type principles be it pesticides things like that but that's interesting to know and it's good to hear because it's sort of for a long time i've been wondering why the biggest producers are all soilless so that's probably a pretty good reason why right like it's just it plays into it I think, well, I think there's a bunch of reasons. I personally, like where if my general beliefs in just agriculture, which like I said, I've been in it for like probably around 30 years or 
or more. And it's kind of evolved over time. I've been a pure organic guy in some cases and pure synthetic. And honestly, when it comes to whether it's plant nutrition, um, human nutrition or pest control, pest and disease control, I'm really a really, and I think, and Copert also is, we're really firm believers in integrated, where I don't think that pure organic is the solution. And I don't think that pure conventional is the, or synthetic is the solution. I think the real answer is a combination of the two. I think there's some really good things that organics brings to the table. And I think there's some really good things that just putting chemical salts um, can bring to the table in, in some situations. And it's really the same with biocontrol. Like a lot of people think that Copert's like, where, oh, the culprit guy or the biocontrol guy, he's always going to push bios. We don't really believe in pure biocontrol. There's basically nobody at our company that believes in that. We really believe in integrated. Um, like there's a ton, there's certain paths. There is just probably never going to be a great biocontrol solution. You're going to need to, whatever, use a physical means or, or a spray or something like that. And I think that's, that's kind of my view on agriculture. It's, it's really, everything's integrated. And whenever somebody gets too far into their, that's their belief system integrate <laughs> their ideas too much. It's, it's not necessarily the best thing. And I'd also say part of the reason why some of those organic places that I've seen, like I've seen some really filthy organic places. I've seen some filthy synthetic places too, but I'd say part of the factor in those organic things is the magic factor is they want to believe that everything's magically taking care of itself and they just don't even look. And then you go, like I always remember, I won't mention any names, but there was one of the guys in Canada who was literally one of the most famous organic people here. He was one of the pioneers. And I was friends with him from before I was in Coper. And he said he invited us out to the greenhouse just because we we're friends. And he's like, oh, I'll go take a look. He says, I'll tell you up front, there's nothing to see there because, you know, the magic factor, you know, we've been organic for so long and everything self-regulates and it's all in balance. And it was the filthiest crop I've ever seen. And this was a place that literally, that was the highest the most expensive produce in the time in Canada. And it was absolutely filthy. And it was because of he, he believed that it was clean and chefs probably believed that it was clean because he kept telling him how magic everything was. So I'm kind of a, I don't know, become more of a practical practicalist. That's the word for over, over the years. Yeah, no, I, I'm on board. I'm on board. Our inherent biases make fools of us all, right? That's really interesting to hear that that's how it sort of played out for you. Uh, we'll have to keep that in mind. But um, with that being said, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of what I was hoping to chat about. Did you have any comments or shout outs you wanted to make? Um, no, no, no real comments. Uh, shout outs to all the people that, like bringing us new biocontrols and new technologies because I think those are the people that they get underrated. There's a lot of everyone doesn't, I don't think most people realize how much work goes into bringing new products. Um, to market, those are kind of the underappreciated people. So I'd shout out to all the R and D people that are locked away in a in a lab somewhere, coming up with solutions. Yeah, a huge shout out to those guys, and you know, likewise, a shout out to yourself and everyone at Copet for, you know, being on board with helping support the show and helping to sponsor us. We really appreciate it, and your your support does not go unnoticed. So you know, thanks so much, Kev, for coming by and having a chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate having you on. And so we don't really like we don't really sponsor a whole lot of stuff. We like I, I think you're bringing some really good content there, and that's partly why we uh, we chose to uh, offer your support. But thanks very much for having me on. Amazing.
killer information there from Kevin of Copet. Thanks so much again for coming by, my friend. Really grateful to have had you on. And there you have it, friends. What would you think? However, I'm really grateful to have had all the guests on the episode today. Matt of Premier Tech talking about Promix Connect and Kevin of Copet Biological Systems. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming on. We appreciate your support. It was great to hear from you. And as always, without you guys, the show couldn't happen. If you guys are after any of the products you heard today, Google them online. You'll be able to find them. All the best products. We only work with companies we get behind. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to check out the Patreon if you're interested in supporting the show and getting early access to content, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. I appreciate everyone on the Patreon. You guys are the lifeblood of the show. I hope you enjoy hearing this one early. Much love to all the listeners, though. And I'll see you for the next one. We'll see you.